Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Thank everyone for being here. We're here today to talk about Russia and how the European Union and the United States can work together to push back against Russia's aggression. 100 years ago this week, the United States entered into World War I. Since then, if not long before, our country's national interests have been closely linked with those of our European allies. Our shared set of interests and policies is clear in how the United States, the European Union, and its member states deal with many things, including terrorism, trafficking in persons, and the threats posed by a resurgent Russia. Russia-related efforts include transatlantic sanctions as well as security-oriented efforts in Georgia and Ukraine. We have thus far worked together against Russia's negative influence and must continue to do so despite President Putin's best attempts to divide us. We've seen some of those attempts here in the United States. As the intelligence community made clear on January the 6th, the Russian government is, was responsible for stealing and sharing information from the email accounts of politicians and members of their staffs. Whether or not Russia played an even larger role in our elections is still being exhaustively examined by multiple parts of the U.S. government, including the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. These are inquiries that I fully support, and I remain in close contact with both Chairman Burr and Vice Chairman Warner as their work continues. As those investigations progress, today's hearing is an opportunity to look forward and to understand how our transatlantic efforts to push back against Russian aggression can continue and possibly expand. In looking ahead, we must be particularly conscious of the concerns that Russia will also attempt to influence European elections this year. Before we move to today's testimony, though, I do want to express my sincere sympathies to the families of the 11 Russians killed yesterday in St. Petersburg and over 40 Russians who were wounded in terrorist attacks across the great city. We may have serious differences with the Russian government, but we stand with the people of Russia against terrorism that is a common threat to all of us. I look forward to hearing today about the new realities and challenges facing our transatlantic partnership and how we can continue to work together in the years ahead. And with that, I turn to my friend, our ranking member, Senator Ben Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I particularly appreciate uh, this hearing. I think it's very, very important that uh, we share a lot in our transatlantic partnership. And one of the things we share is that we are all targeted by Russia's activities to our democratic institutions. But before I uh, comment about the specific subject, I join you in our concerns about what happened in St. Petersburg, and I uh, issued a statement uh, about that terrorist attack. But this morning we're learning that there was now another gas attack in Syria that looks like it was uh, not chlorine, that it was a more serious chemical agent, could very well be sarin, even though we've been informed that all of that gas elements were removed from Syria, and the number of victims appear to be much more serious than any recent attack of chemical weapons in Syria, and that uh, this could only be done by the Assad regime, and of course, Russia is supporting the Assad regime's use of this type of, of warfare. So, Mr. Chairman, it just points out the seriousness of the uh, activities that are taking place in Syria, the fact that Russia is enabling 
the Assad regime to break any form of standards uh, as far as the use of chemical weapons. And now women and children, again, have been murdered as a result of the Assad uh, regime's commission of war crimes. I expect that the international community needs to stand stronger to make sure those that are responsible for these atrocities are held accountable. As we all know, the Russian government sought to influence the U.S. presidential election last November. They attacked the United States. As elected officials, it's our solemn responsibility to understand what happened and to ensure decisive, comprehensive action that protects our democracy. Vladimir Putin has not rested on his laurels since November the 8th. A number of European countries have important elections this year, and we're seeing some of the same tactics of disinformation and interference across the continent. Putin's elections interference is more strategic and sinister than just meddling. <clears throat> Putin, as the head of, of a regime based on corruption and cronyism, has a fear of democracy, which is why he works so hard to suppress it at home and abroad. His aim is to undermine the international democratic values and structures that have kept the world safe for 70 years and enshrined fundamental human rights. Breaking up the European Union, shaking confidence in the American electoral system, these tactics are part and parcel of a bigger aim. So the nature of our response is critical and the stakes could not be higher. And to this point, the administration's Russian policy has been contradictory and confusing with high-level officials contradicting the president's positions. I am particularly concerned about the upcoming elections in France and Germany. In France, we have already seen a view in WikiLeaks of fake news stories discrediting candidates. This is the same Kremlin playbook that we saw in last year's elections here. There are reported financial ties between the Kremlin and the far-right National Front Party, and its leader, Marianne Le Pen just met last week with Putin in Moscow. With the first round of voting fast approaching on April 23rd and a subsequent two-week period until the second round, French voters sit squarely in the sight of Putin's weapons of disinformation and interference. Germany has been at Putin's target for years. In 2015, members of the Bundestag and Chancellor Merkel's party were allegedly hacked by Russian government elements. The head of the German Federal Criminal Police pointed last month to 10 offices that were hacked and said that the significant data drain could be used to influence upcoming elections in September. I'm also deeply concerned about Russia government's increased presence in the Western Balkans. Putin's regime has increased pressure on Bosnia and Serbia. The Kremlin was behind a plot last fall to forcefully take over the Montenegrin parliament and install a new government hostile to NATO. Thankfully, Montenegro emerged unscathed, and I'm proud that the Senate recently approved the country's accession into the alliance. The Russian government's assault on the European partnership requires a comprehensive, strong response. We have seen no action from this administration to counter fresh Russian disinformation. I am afraid that the administration is simply not serious in its response to this significant threat, a reckless posture given the stakes. Many of us in the Senate have refused to sit on our hands. I was proud to draft legislation earlier this year that now is supported by 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats. The Countering Russia Hostilities Act would codify and strengthen sanctions on the Russian Federation for its aggression. 
in Ukraine, Syria, and the United States, and would establish a European democracy initiative to run in parallel to our security efforts to bolster European states' resilience. Members of this committee on both sides of the aisle are co-sponsors, and the bill has been referred to our committee. I, it is a serious, substantive, and comprehensive bill, and I hope it will be marked up soon. Americans and Europeans need to speak with one voice on this important, so the transatlantic values we hold dear, democracy, human rights, and the just, accountable rule of law. We must develop an affirmative agenda to deliver on the democratic hopes of all of our citizens, including our most vulnerable and marginalized. I welcome the ideas of how we can strengthen that ties between both Europe and the United States. I look forward uh, to hearing from our witnesses today. We have a distinguished representative from the European Union. And we thank you for being here. And I look also forward to the distinguished members of our second panel. Thank you. Uh, just in reference to what happened in Syria, um, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I know that this committee passed out an authorization for the use of force in 2012 that had it been acted upon, um, I, I feel we would be in a very different place. Um, and that action was not taken. It was a 10-hour operation, as I understand it, uh, based off the Mediterranean that would have put Assad on its heels. And uh, that action was not taken. Um, instead, we figuratively jumped in Putin's lap. And that was the first beginning of empowering Putin in Syria and uh, asking him to, quote, quote, uh, work with the Syrian government to, uh, to get chemical weapons out, which obviously never fully occurred. So I couldn't uh, agree more that uh, Russia has, has, you know, empowered Assad to do what he's doing. But I'd also say that the Western world did not take, in my opinion, steps that should have been taken at that time to keep what has happened from happening. 500,000 people dead, people being tortured. Uh, I know the ambassador is very aware of, um, of all of that. And uh, again, it's a blight on the Western world, in my opinion. And I'm glad that uh, we have a witness here to talk about Russia today. Our first witness is His Excellency David O'Sullivan, Ambassador and Head of the EU Delegation to the United States, Ambassador O'Sullivan, previously served as Chief Operating Officer of the European External Action Service and has held a number of senior positions within the European Commission. Thank you so much for being here today. I, I know that uh, you're probably uh, a little concerned about being here and the kinds of questions that you'll be asked, so thank you even more so for being here. Um, if you could, if you could summarize your comments in five minutes or so, we'd appreciate it. Um, obviously, we're not going to cut you off, but uh, your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record. And again, thank you for the courtesy of being here today. We look forward to your testimony. Well, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you very much indeed for your invitation to testify before the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and I'm very honored to have this opportunity. Um, I'm not too worried about the questions, uh, Chairman. It's, I'm told there's no such thing as an indiscreet question, only indiscreet answers. So, um, but if I may, at the outset, just echo, sir, your, your, your remarks about the terrible events in St. Petersburg and the terrorist tragedy there and our sympathy to the uh, families uh, of the deceased and the injured uh, on, on this uh, very, very awful event. 
so as you said in your introductory remarks this year, the European Union is celebrating its 60th anniversary of its founding document, the Treaty of Rome. And I'd like to express my deep appreciation to Senator Shaheen and her co-sponsor, Senator McCain, for introducing a Senate resolution that commemorates that occasion. And this year we also celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, which after two world wars helped launch the common project of building a new Europe committed to peace and prosperity. And I think I can speak for all Europeans when I say that we are humbled and always grateful for the sacrifice of the American servicemen and servicewomen who gave their lives to help free Europe. And you mentioned the anniversary of the entry uh, into the First World War of the United States, which will be commemorated in Missouri, I believe, uh, uh, two days' time. Since then, fortunately, we've come a long way, and Europe has always been the United States' closest partner and the other way round, to the benefit of our peoples on both sides of the Atlantic. As for the European Union, we are continuing to work with the new administration and the US Congress in a relationship that is and will always be based on the friendship that ties our peoples and our respective values, principles and interests. Both European Commission President Tusk and European Commission President Juncker have had very cordial discussions with President Trump, Trump on the telephone and high European Union High Representative Federica Mogherini, Presidents Tusk and Juncker hosted Vice President Pence for an early and very positive February visit to Brussels. Uh, High Representative Mogherini has visited Washington twice already this year to meet with Vice President Pence, National Security Advisor McMaster, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mathis, and with many members of Congress, including yourself, sir, and uh, the ranking member. We both benefit from this strategic alliance, and it is self-evident from our economic relationship. 80% of US foreign direct investment comes from Europe. Some 15 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic depend on our mutual trade and together we represent some 50% of world GDP and 30% of world trade. The European Union is and will continue to be, even when the United Kingdom leaves the EU, at the end of negotiations that will last two years, the second economy of the world and the first single market. But of course our links go beyond economics and trade. We are essential partners when it comes to foreign policy and security policy, counterterrorism and defense. The European Union is a global security provider. We have 16 military and civilian missions around the world. Uh, and we started a new partnership with NATO with 42 common actions to counter hybrid and cyber threats in particular. We are your closest ally in the fight against Daesh, and we stood in full solidarity with the US following the 9-11 attacks. And for more than a decade, we've been closest partners in Afghanistan. Our servicemen and women have always fought on the same side and sometimes, sadly, lost their lives on the same battlefield. The European Union also plays a fundamental role in the Western Balkans, uh, which you mentioned, uh, Senator Cardin, again in close cooperation with the United States, investing in security, democracy, rule of law, economic opportunities, and peace in the Balkans. We are the first donor when it comes to humanitarian development aid worldwide, and all of this to show that the European Union is a reliable, trusted, and credible global act actor, a role we are on our way to increase along the lines High Representative Mogherini indicated last year in the EU global strategy. It is in this context of increased EU capability and transatlantic partnership that we address our policies towards Russia. After the end of the Cold War, neither the European Union nor the United States have ever approached Russia as an adversary. Through a vast range of policies, development of mutually beneficial economic relations, cultural exchanges and thematic dialogues, the European Union aimed at building a strategic partnership with Russia. However, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and the conflict in eastern Ukraine have seriously damaged EU-Russia relations. Sovereign equality, 
the non-use of force and territorial integrity are core principles for peace and security, and their respect is and remains key for the European Union. The European Union and the United States, along with others in the international community, have taken a principled position against the illegal annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, which we do not recognize, and against Russia's actions in eastern Ukraine. And we have adopted a package of restrictive measures that we intend to maintain until the full implementation of the Minsk Agreement. Close transatlantic coordination has been crucial for the effectiveness of these measures. Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council and remains a strategic country when it comes to addressing many crises. As the US did in recent years, the European Union has cooperated with Russia on many dossiers, whether on counterterrorism or on the crisis in Syria, on the Middle East peace process, the Iranian nuclear file, or on Libya. That is why we unanimously decided, as the European Union, to be guided by five principles when it comes to our policy on Russia. First and foremost, the EU will continue to support Ukraine and support a solution to the conflict in eastern Ukraine based on the complete implementation of the Minsk agreements. The European Union is also politically and financially supporting reforms to consolidate Ukraine's democracy and governance. EU-US cooperation on support for the reform process in Ukraine is excellent, as is coordination within the G7 framework. Second, we are strengthening the EU's relations with our eastern neighbors through our eastern partnership and our neighborhood policy cooperating with the institutions to promote democracy, the rule of law, respect for human rights, and social and economic development. Third, in the light of disinformation operations, the European Union is building up its resilience. As the European Union, we set up one year ago a strategic communications unit in the External Action Service that monitors and alerts on disinformation campaigns and provides correct and factual information on European Union policies. Fourth, we will continue selectively to engage with Russia as necessary and in accordance with EU interests on foreign and security policy issues. For example, Russia has been invited to attend the conference on the future of Syria and the region that we will host tomorrow in Brussels. On these and on other crucial issues, we will continue to engage for Russia, with Russia. The fifth and final principle, and I've nearly finished, sir, uh, to the e of the EU's approach is our continued support for Russian pe people, Russian civil society, and for contacts between the European Union and Russian citizens. This is why work continues on cross-border cooperation, education, science and research cooperation, among others. So, Mr. Chairman, our transatlantic policy towards Russia has been united and credible. More than ever in this complex and fragile world, that is what is needed both cooperation and partnership. This is true for the European Union, and we believe this is also true for the United States. I thank you, sir. Thank you. I might ask just a, a couple of questions, and then, as usual, move to our ranking member uh, for more fulsome questions and reserve the rest of my time. But I know that many of us on both sides of the aisle were very concerned coming in that uh, there was a potential that this administration might do, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a cheap grand bargain with Russia on uh, Syria. I think there was legitimate concerns on both sides of the aisle. Um, I think they've evolved some, and I think the atmosphere uh, itself has evolved. Um, you're, you're talking to your U.S. counterparts here. Do you get any sense at all that the administration currently is planning to lift the sanctions that we've worked closely with Europe on relative to what's happened in Ukraine and Ukraine and, and Crimea? 
Um, no, the conversations we've had with the uh, administration on, on this subject, uh, as on and many others, has been very reassuring, and we have no such indication. And I think uh, there is still a remarkable unity of purpose between the United States and the European Union with regard to those issues. So there's no fear on your part that the United States is getting ready to act independently relative to these issues and undermine the cohesiveness that we now have relative to, to Russia, Ukraine, Crimea, and other issues? Uh, no, sir, not at this point in time at all. Um, I, I, I will say, just as an observation, uh, I find in this body uh, where you stand is based on where you sit. Um, we've got a Iran sanctions bill that has a number of co-sponsors that weren't able to, to mark up at present because of concerns about how the European Union might react and elections that are coming up. On the other hand, there's a Russia bill it's very broad-based uh, that would impose unilaterally sanctions on uh, broad energy sectors in Russia on top of what is uh, now in place, um, uh, gas pipelines, those kinds of things. Um, are these the kind of things that, that you would like, uh, Mr. Ambassador, for us to work closely with you guys on, or do you think it's good for us to go ahead and move out unilaterally uh, in this particular case? Mr. Chairman, I, I think the enormous strength of our policy, and in particular our sanctions policy, has been its very close coordination. We have moved in lockstep uh, throughout this process, and I think that has uh, not only ensured uh, the right political response, but also the effectiveness of the sanctions. Uh, it's well known that the European Union has perhaps even closer economic ties with Russia, and therefore whatever we do has perhaps more impact than what can be decided by the United States alone. Uh, and I think it would be very important that before uh, moving in the direction that you have indicated, we, we coordinate very closely, because I, I think it is possible that measures of the kind you mentioned could have an adverse effect uh, on the European Union. It'd be a pretty big blowback, would it not, on the European Union? I'm sorry, sir? There'd be pretty big blowback, would there not be, on the European Union uh, relative to the energy component? Yeah, I, I uh, you know, we would need to look more at the detail, but the, some of the ideas which we have seen discussed uh, could indeed have uh, a, a rather serious impact uh, on the European energy sector. We are diversifying. We have a very strong policy of diversification, but the fact is we are still... Uh, many of our member states are heavily dependent upon imports from uh, Russia, uh, and it would be very important uh, not to uh, destabilize that situation, which is of, of vital interest for, for many of our member states. Well, we thank you for being here, and I, I, I think that the committee generally senses uh, a unique opportunity, one we've never had since I've been here, to work closely with an administration on developing policies in various areas, and I'm sure there's going to end up potentially being disagreement. But uh, I see that as an opportunity for us. We're trying to build upon that right now. And I hope that we'll continue to work in conjunction uh, with our European partners. Again, I think one of the bills that's been referenced, actually both of them, I've heard from many of the sponsors, is not really yet ready for prime time, uh, has a number of components that would, as you mentioned, uh, blow, blow back on our European allies. And I hope that as a body we'll continue to work in a thoughtful way to put forth policies that, you know, are consistent uh, with the way we've all been working together. Uh, I can tell you again, uh, if I had any sense that this administration was on the verge of lifting sanctions relative to Ukraine and Crimea, I'd be the first person rushing 
uh, to try to pass something to keep that from happening. But I think we've got an opportunity to work in a, in a seamless fashion together with you to, to have the kind of outcomes that we wish. With that, uh, Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, following up on the chairman's point, the high representative pointed out to me that there are certain sanctions that Europe has imposed on Russia that are stronger than sanctions that the United States has imposed on Russia, and that there may be some interest for us to try to uh, pattern some of our sanctions in what Europe has already imposed on Russia. But I, I want to move to the parity here with working with Europe, which I agree with as we work with Russia. We're, we're not going to be effective, and what we learned with Iran is that we are able to be effective in bringing Iran to the negotiating table because the United States and Europe work together. So would you answer in a similar vein that what we decide to do in, in regards to Iran, that it should be done in conjunction with our European allies? Well, I think uh, we did have a close coordination uh, in relation it, it, to Iran. The chairman mentioned that we are considering additional legislation. You were pretty free to comment that before we do legislation in regards to Russia, we should work very closely with Europe, which I agree. Would you have the same response in regards to additional sanctions on Iran? Well, I think we would, uh, as you know, uh, Senator, we would need to, to look in, in more detail at those sanctions. Uh, the the uh, your sanctions or the proposed. You have a different view in regards to Iran than Russia about working with Europe. No, sir. I think I think we, we, we should work together, but that means that we have to sit down and and just decide what is in 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 our best interest, uh, uh, and how we can best achieve the objectives. Uh, if I interpreted your answer to the chairman's question, is that you would like to be engaged before we enact new legislation as regards to Russia's sanctions? Do you feel the same way about new sanctions enacted by Congress on Iran? It's a simple question. I think, sir, uh, of course, at the end of the day, uh, each uh, entity, the European Union and our member states uh, on, the, on the one hand and the United States on the other, remain sovereign to, to take these decisions, and that, of course, is, is beyond question. Uh, I think the point is that we should uh, attempt as far as possible to uh, coordinate and to have a, a common position. That may be possible in some situations. It may not in others. I think the most important thing, sir, with respect, is that anything either of us do, is done in full awareness of the possible consequences uh, for the other side in, in this relationship. And that's true with Russia sanctions as well as Iranians. I think it works in both directions, sir. Thank you. I, I, the transatlantic partnership's been very valuable for 70 years. I agree with that. And it led to the creation of NATO, which was an effort to protect the territorial integrity of the member states uh, and to promote democratic ideals and human rights. And it's worked very successfully. In regards to non-NATO countries, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we found more and more of previously communist countries uh, joining NATO, joining EU, becoming democratic states, and we have protected territorial integrity. For non-NATO states that are not part of NATO, we have found that there is territorial issues, starting with Moldova, then Georgia, and now Ukraine. So we have challenges. There's no question about it. Russia's sanctions, as you have pointed out, has been effective uh, in both Europe and the United States imposing, imposing sanctions. We've been able to, to move forward. I would just urge in your statement, you say that we shouldn't give sanction relief unless Russia complies with Minsk, and I fully agree with that statement. But I would also add Helsinki commitments to that list. 
Russia is a signator of the 1975 Helsinki Accords, and they violated every one of the principal uh, commitments in Helsinki by what they've done in Ukraine. And they should not be getting sanction relief unless they comply with Helsinki Accords and, uh, and remove itself from Crimea and its incursions in eastern Ukraine. I want to uh, point one part of the legislation that I filed that I would urge you to take a look at because I think it's vitally important that we move quickly with the European elections. And that is the European Democracy Initiative. We formed NATO to protect the territorial integrities and promote our ideals. The democratic initiatives, each one of our states are taking pre uh, preemptive actions because of Russia's incursions through the use of propaganda and attacks on our democratic institutions. Wouldn't we be more effective if we coordinate that effort, share that information, and work with a common defense to Russia's propaganda and attacks on our democratic institutions? Uh, yes, sir. I think it would be it would be very good to uh, compare uh, the, our concerns and and how that can be reacted to. Uh, you know, this is something which is also being discussed uh, within NATO. Uh, we've uh, just as we speak, the hybrid center of excellence is being set up to uh, uh, increase uh, European and, and NATO resilience to uh, uh, cyber attacks. So yes, I think I think this is a, a, an issue of common concern on which we should certainly uh, discuss and see if we can uh, work together. Well, it, it, part of the legislation deals exactly with, with that point. And the last point I would make, Mr. Chairman, as, as we talk about taking action against Iran or Russia, they're very much related. Russia's activities in Syria and supporting Iran bolsters Iran Iranian mischief and nefarious activities. So I think there's a direct relationship on the transatlantic partnership between how we deal with Russia and how we deal with Iran. If I could follow up, I assume that uh, our countries are working together right now and it doesn't take legislation. I mean, surely our intelligence agencies and the intelligence agencies of the European Union already are working together to make each other aware of the nefarious activities Russia is engaged in in their countries. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay. Senator Young. Mr. Ambassador, good to be with you. Um, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, 20 million people are at risk of starvation within the next six months in Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. Some 22 million children have been left hungry, sick, displaced, and out of school in those four countries. Nearly 1.4 million are at imminent risk of death this year from severe malnutrition. Uh, the United Nations is appealing uh, for $5.6 billion in 2017 to address famines in these four countries. They and other stakeholders, uh, NGOs and, and others around the world, indicate what is really needed, not just resources, although I'd love it if you would speak to uh, what measures the EU uh, member countries intend to take in this effort, but they're, they're asking for a diplomatic surge. Your member countries have significant leverage as does the United States to help in this area. What are, what are you doing? Well, uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, 
we are actually, the European Union and its member states combined, we are the largest provider of <coughs> development assistance in the world. Some 58% of global development assistance goes to the world, and the same is true for humanitarian. So I think we are already uh, extremely active. We are very sensitive to uh, emerging new, new crises, uh, and that is why we have uh, additional funds available for emergency humanitarian aid. So, I mean, this, this we take very seriously. Uh, we know that the crisis in Syria mainly turned into a, a, a refugee crisis because there was not sufficient funds for the so, UNHCR. So learning from those program. lessons in, in Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, Nigeria, Somalia, uh, what is the uh, European Union doing? Well, uh, the first instance is, of course, to try to, uh, if there's an immediate humanitarian problem, uh, people there starving, is. Is, is to move food and to work with the humanitarian agencies, which is who we work with, to deliver the necessary food and resources. Of course. Uh, How much are you delivering? Uh, sir, I cannot give you a precise number this morning. I'm happy to give it to you. Uh, sure. I think uh, it's later. in the millions. Um, with respect to a diplomatic surge, um, uh, what is being done by the EU member countries on that front? Well, it, you know, as always in these situations, as, as you rightly point out, behind the immediate crisis of humanitarian, there's frequently a problem of government, ma governance, management of the economy and so forth. We work very closely with all the countries that you've mentioned uh, to try to help them address those issues and, and get to the root cause, which then provokes a famine or an immediate crisis. So we operate on both levels, uh, trying to deal with the immediate crisis, uh, the humanitarian relief, and at the same time trying to see if we can help these countries through technical assistance, but also through more, more we're, structured we're told investment. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, we were told roughly, I think a week ago, a week and a half ago, that within the next two weeks, uh, we would start to see uh, the leading edge of these 20 million people dying. That's, that's three times the population of my home state of Indiana. So um, I would certainly welcome the opportunity um, for the United States, uh, which I believe needs to act far more, more boldly on this front, to work with our partners uh, at the European Union to also act far more boldly on this front and, and try and provide some measure of relief uh, to these uh, individuals who will suffer. Uh, if I could uh, turn to uh, the importance of our trading relationship. I am a firm believer in, in the need to uh, open up our respective markets to one another. We certainly mutually benefit from it. 80% of U.S. foreign direct investment comes from Europe. Our economic relationship supports 15 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, Hoosiers, uh, almost 26% of our exports go to Europe, uh, so thank you very much. And Germany is the third largest export destination uh, after uh, Canada and Mexico for our exports. Um, in your original prepared testimony, uh, you indicated that our economic and trade relationship is very balanced. Um, I, I, we could talk about the trade deficit I'm not as concerned uh, as some are uh, uh, about that, although uh, there are things we need to do domestically working with the EU to address that. Um, but I see great imbalance with respect to a particular sector, and that is medical. Um, pharmaceuticals, uh, you've got a ceiling on, on, on price in so many of your member countries, diagnostics, other medical services. Um, what can the EU do to uh, help address uh, the subsidy that the American people pay to the wealthy countries of the European Union for pharmaceuticals, diagnostics, and others in terms of research and development? Well, Senator, I'm, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, this is, these are commercial uh, 
transactions uh, where products are manufactured, where they are sold. It is true that within Europe, uh, most of our member states in, in the healthcare systems do try to uh, uh, limit the excessive cost of, of pharmaceuticals uh, and to manage that in, in the best way as possible, but it's always done in, in discussion with the companies. So I'm, I, I'm not sure that there's anything uh, that in terms of how the trade flows, this is ultimately down to the commercial decisions of, of companies and, and of, uh, and of the, the healthcare systems. The in, private company is working with your member governments uh, on, on agreements and then uh, at the consumer level, it is, it is American consumers that are, are bearing a disproportionate burden of the costs of these things that, that your member countries benefit from. And, and so I see a, a, um, a disparity there, uh, and uh, it's, it's of concern to many Americans. And I just wanted to very directly communicate that to you, and perhaps we could work constructively on this matter uh, moving forward. So um, thank you. Thank you, sir. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, Ambassador, for being uh, with us today. The transatlantic partnership is incredibly important to both uh, the European Union and the United States, and we appreciate you being here. Let me ask you, uh, I assume, I read your principles that you had in your presentation. I assume that one of the principles for Europe still is trying to preserve the post-World War II international order. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir. And, and, in, and in pursuit of trying to preserve the World War II international order, how does the European Union approach dealing with countries that violate the international order in terms of trying to find a way to bring them back? Let's say Russia, for example. Well, I think uh, what is clear from uh, the five principles that I mentioned uh, is that we believe that when uh, there is a, a flagrant violation of those principles that should be sanctioned. That is what we have done in the case of Russia, uh, both in relation to the illegal annexation of Crimea, which we do not recognize, and the inter continued interference uh, in the eastern provinces. And that is why we are, have put in place sanctions uh, related to both of those uh, uh, behavior in both of those situations, uh, which will not be removed until such time as there is full compliance with the, the Minsk uh, uh, agreement with regard to the uh, situation in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so uh, our, po our policy is always one of uh, reacting where there is a flagrant uh, breach and trying to uh, put in place uh, appropriate responses, and at the same time continuing to engage with countries uh, to try to persuade them of the benefits of uh, aligning themselves with uh, solid international norms to which we, we have all subscribed. Fair enough. So it, while we have cooperated and tried to be uh, in tandem, we have not always started off the United States and the European Union in tandem. As a matter of fact, in some cases, the EU has led, uh, and as was referenced before, the EU has some stronger sanctions than the United States against Russia. That did not necessarily bring us in tandem. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the United States, particularly as it related to Iran, uh, began to lead the way in which we are very uh, pleased that the European Union uh, joined in that effort and there is solidarity on it. But, uh, but it's fair to say that we don't always start off in tandem uh, at the very beginning. Is that not a fair statement? 
I think that can sometimes be the case, Senator, yeah. yes. And, and, well, actually, it, it is the case as it relates to Russia. You are far ahead of us in some very significant ways on Russia than the United States is in some of the more far-reaching sanctions that we have yet to employ. I, we, we have a, a broad alignment of our sanctions. There are, there are nuances between us. Uh, I think what we've always tried to make sure is that the differences do not cause problems for the other party, so that uh, there is nothing that we, we do, we do in our, within our own sanctions regime that would cause a, a difficulty for... Well, sanctions for in and of themselves always cause some consequence, uh, not just to the intended party. Uh, we are trying to get the international, to, to observe the international order, but to those who levy them, because there is a degree of sacrifice. Isn't that a fair statement? Uh, uh, absolutely. I now, has Iran violated the international order? I'm not talking about the uh, JCPOA. I'm talking about its intercontinental ballistic missile testing, its pursuit of terrorism uh, actively, its destabilization of the region, uh, human rights violations. We do not categorize any or of all or any one of those as a violation of the international order. I think that they are extremely problematic. As you know, we have uh, sanctions in place linked to those, those, uh, those, those matters which are outside of the scope of the, what was agreed in the context of the JCPOA. So we so, have already so, some sanctions. So the EU does not necessarily believe that the violation of international order by Iran in other areas uh, is uh, ultimately to be uh, overlooked as it relates to the agreement we made with Iran uh, on its nuclear accord? I think, sir, there are two separate things. Uh, the nuclear accord is a self-contained uh, uh, agreement dealing with that issue and the sanctions which were linked to that. Uh, we have always said, uh, and I think uh, High Representative Mogherini repeated this when she was here, that, of course, the, the other issues which have not gone away with Iran, which you mentioned, the ballistic missiles, the human rights, support for terrorism, and so forth, they continue to be uh, a subject of a disagreement with Iran. Yes. Now, finally, how do you assess the staying power uh, of uh, sanctions as it relates to Russia in the EU? We, we see Russia doing a series of things to try to pick apart countries, and since the EU works through unanimity, that's always a challenge. How do you assess the staying power uh, of the sanctions regime for so long as Russia doesn't change course and change the actions that cause the sanctions to be implemented in the first place? Senator, I think we've been very clear uh, the uh, decision going back to 2015 said very clearly that the sanctions are linked to the implementation of the Minsk agreement and should be maintained until such time as that agreement is, is fully implemented. Uh, the agreement, the, the um, uh, sanctions relating to Crimea are uh, uh, a separate uh, discussion and uh, they of course are linked to the illegal annexation of, of that uh, part of Ukraine which we do not recognize. So I think we're, we're very firm in, in maintaining those sanctions as long as the original uh, reason for their imposition remains. Thank you. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, um, I really appreciated the opportunity to meet recently with the European Commission Vice President for uh, Energy Union when he was in Washington to discuss energy-related issues. The European Commission has continually reiterated the need to find energy suppliers other than Russia being a high priority, and I wanted to follow up a little bit on uh, what Senator Menendez was talking about, because Russia has demonstrated over and over again its willingness to use energy resources as a weapon. Uh, Putin has used ener uh, Russia's energy sources to extort, to threaten, uh, to coerce our allies and our partners. So are, are you concerned about the European Union's over-reliance on Russia for energy resources? 
Well, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, indeed, uh, we have this commission under Jean-Claude Juncker has a very ambitious project called European Energy Union, which is to create a fully integrated uh, energy grid across uh, all 20, 28, uh, in the future 27 member states, precisely designed to reduce uh, the reliance of any member state on any one source. The idea being that all member states should have at least three sources of supply and they cannot be hostage to uh, a single supplier. And that is a very important project which involves infrastructure development, the building of new LNG terminals, the building of interconnectors between the Iberian Peninsula and uh, uh, France, uh, uh, and uh, uh, finding ways in which uh, energy our, our member states can diversify their, progressively diversify uh, their sources of energy supply over time. So then could you please share with us your thoughts on how the United States can help the European Union meet its energy demands and diversify away from countries that use energy resources as a weapon? specifically Russia? I think uh, one of the ways in which we would be grateful for your support would be to uh, liberalize exports of uh, LNG uh, gas supplies to Europe, or at least uh, to put them on the world market. They may not automatically go to Europe, but they would have the effect of uh, making that a, a more liquid and a more vibrant market, which would be to the benefit of uh, our member states uh, who have invested in LNG terminals, uh, both in uh, Lithuania and down in Croatia. Uh, thank you. No, I appreciate that very much. Clearly in Wyoming, we have a significant abundance of, uh, of natural gas that could be used for exactly that purpose. I, I did want to talk with you a little bit about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Over the last several years, uh, I've seen Russia's continued efforts to undermine peace and security in Europe, including through its use of energy, as we've talked about, and using it as a point of political leverage. Uh, the United States has been working closely with our partners in Europe to promote energy security through diversification, as you mentioned, uh, including all sources of energy. But in, in July of 2016, I joined a bipartisan group of senators, some are here on the panel on both sides of the aisle uh, today, including Senator Shaheen and Murphy and Rubio and Risch and Johnson, <laughs> members of the committee and sending a letter uh, to the president of the European Commission. The letter expressed concerns about what we saw as the devastating impacts of Nord Stream 2 on Ukraine and on European energy security. Uh, you know, Nord Stream 2, as you know, would run from Russia under the Baltic Sea directly to Germany. Uh, this pipeline would follow the path of the original Nord Stream pathway and would significantly boost Russia's gas exports to Germany. Several European countries have raised concerns that Nord Stream 2 would undermine sanctions on Russia and increase Russia's political leverage over Eastern Europe. In addition, it's estimated this pipeline would cost Ukraine about $2 billion annually in natural gas transit fees. So, so do you believe that Nord Stream 2, this pipeline, would be a step backwards in the diversification of Europe's energy resources in terms of suppliers, in terms of routes, by making Europe less or, or more reliant on Russian gas? Well, Senator, as I think you, you recall when the Vice President met with you, uh, the, the, the view of the European Commission about Nord Stream 2 is that uh, it is not uh, compatible or a part of the project of energy union and diversification. Uh, the European Commission is also not convinced that it's actually needed. Uh, but of course, at the end of the day, it is a commercial project, uh, and if uh, parties decide to, to build it, the important thing then will be that it fully conforms with uh, a European U Union legislation uh, on uh, energy liberalization, what we call the third energy package, uh, both the, the bit that is onshore, there would also have to be some discussion about how you would manage the, the offshore part. But the, the overall position, I think, of the European Commission on this matter is clear, but it remains, at the end of the day, a project to be undertaken by private commercial actors. And could you address some of the things I've heard in traveling uh, with a number of, of countries involved? 
where they mentioned investments, contributions by Putin, by Russia, to uh, environmental extremist groups around Europe to prevent additional exploration for Europe in an effort to continue to keep Europe more connected to the European Union, more connected to Russian sources of energy. I'll be very honest with you, Senator. I'm not informed about that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to comment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for being here today and for your kind words on our resolution on the Treaty of Rome. Um, I certainly share, and I think all of us do, the importance of the transatlantic relationship and the contribution that it's made to um, the 70 years of stability that most of our countries have enjoyed since World War II and to the prosperity that so many of our countries have enjoyed. Um, as we look at Russia's activities in Europe, one of the things that we've seen is that as they have looked at countries that were formerly within the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union and Russia, as those countries have tried to move towards the West, that has precipitated some of Russia's actions. We saw that in Ukraine, um, we saw it in Montenegro, and in Moldova, a number of countries that really want to move closer to the West and be part of um, our alliances. As we look at countries like Albania and Serbia, Macedonia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the, the interest that they have in joining the EU, what can we do? I, I appreciate that they need to reform many of their institutions and address um, issues like corruption in those countries. But as we think about the counterbalance that that provides to Russian activities, how can the EU continue to encourage those aspirant nations to continue to make the tough political decisions that are necessary to join the Union? Well, thank you, Senator. Uh, indeed, the Western Balkans is an area which I, I mentioned in my introductory remarks of, of great concern, and I think the High Representative, when she was here, raised with a number of you uh, her concerns, but also her enormous activity uh, in this area. She's visited the, the region recently, uh, and we are very committed. Uh, the Western Balkans has a clear perspective uh, of membership of the European Union. Indeed, a number of the countries you referred to are actually fully candidates and therefore on the way to becoming members. Um, but as you say, it is a tough process uh, and uh, it, it is important that they make the necessary changes because, to be very frank, if they were to enter without doing that, it would go badly uh, and it would ultimately perhaps be counterproductive. So this is uh, very important that we help these countries to make the necessary changes, including in governance, anti-corruption and rule of law and so forth. Uh, we work very well with the United States. Uh, I must say uh, we work very well with the, the local U.S. ambassadors in all of those countries uh, where I think we're absolutely on the same page in terms of how we go forward. So this is, for us, a very high priority. We know that the, the future stabilization of the region and to avoid any return to the kind of conflicts we've seen in the past in that region is uh, future membership of the European Union is, is a very important element in, in, in making that happen. And we're very committed to that. Um, and I certainly appreciate the challenges that are presented. I, I, I do think thinking of ways that we can try and accelerate some of those efforts will be important as Russia tries to do everything possible to separate um, those countries from their Western aspirations. Um, you talked a little bit about some of the efforts that are ongoing in the EU to respond to Russia's disinformation campaign. How can we better coordinate our efforts as we look at 
how to respond because I, I think that as we look at Russia's interference in our elections, that one of the most frightening things that we have learned is the propaganda efforts that they have underway and the efforts to impact our social media and really create confusion so that people don't know what the truth is. Well, as the, the chairman indicated uh, earlier, I think we are working and our, our intelligence services and our information services are coordinating, but that is not to say that we couldn't do better and that we could not do more. We are uh, working very closely with NATO uh, uh, on this issue. Um, it is a complex issue, to be frank, Senator. It, it is. There's and, perhaps and no, simple, no, no, no single simple answer, uh, but we would certainly be very open to uh, intensifying uh, our, our cooperation in, and, in this area. And I don't mean to interrupt, but... But I think this goes beyond just intelligence efforts and efforts on the part of our militaries. It seems to me that this is an issue about making our publics aware. And I know that in countries where Russia has done this meddling, I was in Poland in February, and they were very aware of these efforts. And I know other countries are, but, but there are a number that are not and that don't differentiate between what's Russian propaganda and what they see and, and think is news and the facts. So I, I'm really talking about how can we better inform our publics. Is there anything in that arena that you think we could initiate? Well, we have already, uh, under the leadership of uh, High Representative Mogherini, set up uh, an East Stratcom task force with 10 Russian language communication specialists within the uh, European External Action Service to uh, ensure effective communication and promotion of EU policies, to strengthen the media environment, uh, and to uh, improve our capacity to forecast and uh, address issues of disinformation. We have an extensive network uh, of people around uh, the European Union who, who feed us uh, the information, and we, we do a month, a weekly report uh, of this kind of disinformation. So that's one area in which uh, we are active. Uh, we, I think, could, could certainly imagine uh, close cooperation with, with allies and partners in, in the same effort. Thank you very much. Just to follow up before going to Senator Gardner, um, I think in the United States there's probably a 100% awareness by citizens of Russia's involvement in our elections. Maybe 110%. Um, so, so Oh, I think I think people are very very aware that there's concerns about Russia and what they uh, their involvements here. I think that's a general statement that's true. Um, in France, just out of curiosity, with the upcoming election, just to follow on on Senator Shaheen's comments, what is the awareness there of Russia's potential and right, I'll say beyond potential their involvement in the elections there? Would you guess? Sir, I think this is a subject which is openly debated in, in, in the media across Europe. Uh, how much of that sinks into the consciousness of the individual voters, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say. But it is a, it is a subject of regular debate uh, on TV programs, in newspapers, in social media. So uh, I, I think there, there is an awareness that this is, a, this is a serious issue. Of course, people have different views about it. Uh, and uh, in the context of national elections, uh, it can also become a part of the political debate, which uh, can complicate the, the matter, but I think there is generally a high level of awareness. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador, thank you for your time uh, this, after, this morning testifying before the committee today. I want to follow up a little bit on what uh, Chairman Corker uh, just mentioned. Uh, in, in France, Germany, other nations, where do you see Russia predominantly aiming their focus on news uh, interference, disruption uh, within European Union? 
Well, I think that we are aware that there, there is a big effort underway to spread disinformation, to uh, confuse uh, news stories. But I, I have to say that I think we must also have fair, fair, fairly good confidence in the robustness of our democratic systems. Uh, we've just had the elections in the Netherlands. Uh, the the, the uh, elections are ongoing in, in France uh, and, in, and, in, and in Germany at the, in, in September. Uh, of course, a moment of uh, election uh, is a moment of heightened political activity, and you see an increase in this kind of disinformation and, and uh, other spreading of, of rumors. Um, so I, I think there is, there is awareness of that. Uh, I think uh, member states for who, who are responsible ultimately for this have taken some steps to avoid any, any possible interference in the good conduct of the elections. In the Netherlands, uh, they went back to manual counting to avoid the risk. I think in, in France for the presidential elections, uh, some possibilities for people living overseas to vote online have, have been changed to, to more secure means just to uh, try to make the system as, as secure and robust as possible. So I, I think uh, any moment of, of, of election is, is a moment of increased discussion and tension in any, any national situation, but I think our member states are, are well aware of this and addressing it. Out, outside of the elections uh, in Poland, Hungary, other nations, have you seen Russian involvement in other uh, actions taking place by those governments in Poland, Hungary, or influence? I have, I have no personal knowledge, sir, that I could share with you uh, this morning. Yeah, thank you. Uh, there was a report in the past 24 hours about Lithuania intelligence sources stating, stating that Russia uh, could uh, attack within Eastern Europe within 24 hours uh, notice, with as little as 24 hours notice. Um, they talked about the NATO decision speed, uh, the decision speed to which NATO would respond, NATO's reaction time. Uh, how does the European Union react to uh, these types of reports from Lithuania? Well, I, I think you will have discerned yourself, sir. It's primarily a NATO question. It's a military question for which the European Union is not directly responsible. We work, of course, very closely with, with, with NATO. Uh, uh, 22 of our member states are, are, are members of NATO, so there's a large coincidence of, uh, of view, but when it comes to matters military, that is uh, entirely within the, the remit of the alliance and, and not, strictly speaking, within the European Union. And does the European Union, I mean, help me out, I mean, <laughs> do, you, do you talk to NATO about this type of report? I, we have very good uh, cooperation with NATO and we share a lot of information, so yes, I'm sure we, I'm sure we do discuss these things, but the, the state of military preparedness, if you like, is, is a responsibility of the NATO alliance. Oh, I understand uh, that, I understand yeah. that, but I'm yeah. just curious about what, what conversations with uh, General Breedlove uh, last year uh, in NATO uh, talk about uh, the intelligence community within uh, the European theater as it relates to Russia. What do you see from uh, member nations, European Union member nations, about intelligence efforts within within the European Union to counter Russian aggression? Well, I think there's very good cooperation between our intelligence services. Uh, it, this is, of course, at the end of the day, a matter of member state national responsibility, uh, not, uh, not something which is decided uh, at, at the level of the European Union, but there is, there is very good cooperation and sharing of information between uh, our national intelligence services uh, dealing with all of these issues. Has the European Union sanctioned any Russian individuals or entities uh, regarding cyber activity or human rights violations? Um, can I get back to you on that? I wouldn't, off the top of my head, I wouldn't be sure that I could give you an accurate answer, so uh, let me uh, come back to you with uh, a precise answer on that, sir. Could you talk a little bit about Russia's involvement in perhaps a migration crisis across Europe? Well, I'm not sure that I, 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 can, I can add very much. Uh, I mean, the migration crisis in, it, in itself, of course, is, uh, has been a major challenge for the European Union. I think we have 
uh, got a grip on it uh, in, in, in recent years and, and are managing it now more effectively than was the case at the immediate moment of the, 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 the surge. Um, I, I don't think that we are aware of a particular Russian role in, in that uh, beyond, the, 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 of course, the whole situation in Syria, which is the root cause of, of much of the, the crisis. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Keynes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. Um, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Um, for your, your diligent and determined and bipartisan leadership on this uh, critical issue. Uh, and I'd like to thank all of our witnesses, uh, both Ambassador Sullivan, O'Sullivan, who's before us, and Ambassador Volker and Bear, who will soon join us, uh, for your willingness to share your expertise with our committee. Um, I've seen firsthand, as have many members of this committee, the effects of Russian disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks, and attempts to influence elections. And that's why I think it's critical uh, that we work together to mark up legislation uh, that will strengthen our hand um, as we seek to indicate to our European partners a bipartisan determination to take firm action uh, in the face of Russian uh, aggression. Last summer, I had the opportunity uh, to lead a bipartisan delegation. We visited the Czech Republic, Ukraine, and Estonia. Uh, and I was deeply concerned by the anti-EU sentiment uh, that I witnessed during this trip uh, and the rise of anti-establishment ideologies uh, and anti-EU uh, parties, uh, similar to some of the anti-establishment uh, and populist political ideology uh, we've seen here. Um, how could this trend um, of uh, more and more um, sort of anti-establishment, anti-EU political parties across the entire continent um, threaten our partnership with the EU? Um, and what tools do our democracies possess to fight Russian disinformation campaigns that we could strengthen together? Well, on the question of the disinformation campaign, I think I've already uh, uh, addressed that. Uh, it, um, on the more general question, Senator, of uh, the, the trend towards anti-establishment or more nationalist-looking parties or parties with more extreme views or uh, very critical of the European Union, Forgive me, but I mean, at the end of the day, we're democracies, and uh, I, I think it, it is important that uh, whatever sentiments are out there in the general population find their way into the political system and find an expression through the political system. Uh, obviously, I would hope uh, that many of these views would not become mainstream or would not become majority trends. Uh, and I think uh, the, the, the challenge uh, in many countries these days is for the establishment parties to re-establish relevance and, and an ability to address the concerns of citizens who perhaps turn to these other parties because they feel they're not getting the answers that they, they were looking for from, from the establishment. And I think that is a challenge uh, in, 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 on both sides of the Atlantic to, to, to find a way of, of, of doing that. Uh, but I, 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 as I said before, I remain very confident in the robustness of our democratic systems on both sides of the, of the Atlantic and, and the ability of our political system to manage and contain uh, this, the, these movements uh, without it overthrowing uh, the, the fundamental principles of, of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Well, let me uh, ask about a specific case uh, in the upcoming French elections. Um, can you explain to me a scenario whereby Marine Le Pen secures the French presidency uh, and then seeks to withdraw France from the EU? And tell me what sort of security and economic impacts that would have uh, on the transatlantic relationship, whether it would be constructive in any way. I fear, Senator, that's one of those 
fair questions, but to which I could only give an indiscreet answer. So I, I, if you'll forgive me, I'm, I'm not going to speculate about uh, what might be the result of the French election uh, or what might be the consequences. Uh, I, I don't feel competent to, to comment on that here today. You may well be competent, but it's probably um, wise uh, for you not to be too pointed in that answer. Um, and are you concerned some EU countries uh, may move soon to lift or ease sanctions against Russia due to the ongoing political and uh, perhaps economic pressure that's being applied on them to do so? No, Senator. As I, as I said earlier, uh, we are very confident in the uh, strong consensus that exists about the sanctions which are in place, why they are there, and the conditions under which they could eventually be removed, uh, which uh, are clearly set down in our, in, in our decision. So, no, I'm, I, I don't have that concern. In the visit I just referenced to Estonia, um, we heard about um, the so-called bronze soldier um, cyber attack in 2007. A, a World War II-era uh, statue of a Soviet soldier was moved uh, just a short way from the capital to a, outside the capital at a military uh, cemetery. And in response, Russian hackers uh, launched a massive cyber attack against Estonian websites. And the former president called this a public-private partnership. Um, what recommendations do you have for us about countering this style of interference and are there lessons the U.S. could learn from uh, the EU East Stratcom Task Force and what work it's been doing? Well, on, on your latter point, uh, we'd be happy to, to share uh, f further details of, of what we're doing uh, uh, to see if this is something that uh, we could uh, work further on. Uh, on the question of, of hacking and, and uh, cyber warfare, uh, I think we are working very closely, uh, both, both within NATO uh, and we also have, between our, our member states, uh, a clear uh, uh, strategy to address hybrid and, and cyber strategies. This is obviously an issue of very big concern on both sides of the Atlantic. I think for all developed societies, the damage which could potentially be done is, is, is huge. Uh, and I think all our systems are, are working very closely to figure out how we can uh, counter or pre uh, even better prevent uh, these kind of, any kind of attacks of this kind from whichever source, by the way. Well, um, Mr. Ambassador, just thank you for sharing uh, from your experience about ongoing, widespread, and, and sadly, often effective Russian aggression against uh, our democracies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, David, good to see you. Uh, sure. So we've had a good discussion today about uh, Russian disinformation and, and propaganda, and uh, I often think when I hear our discussion that if we'd only listen to our allies in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, um, we would be a little ahead of the game because they've been warning us for a long time about what's happening to them. I'm looking at uh, disinformation review this week, and here's the top of many stories that they are uh, exposing. Uh, a Czech Republic disinformation outlet wrote that the Council of Europe is enforcing a rule that Czech children are stolen from their mothers in order to privilege the LGBT community and help the Islamization of the nation, uh, thus playing into two very common uh, anti-Western narratives in one, and obviously very false narratives, you will tell us this morning, correct? Uh, so, I mean, this is happening constantly um, in, among your member states, like the Czech Republic, but also uh, in, in Western Europe. Um, we are now seeing this happening in France and in Germany with the elections. We certainly are experiencing it here. I think the chairman is right. People are aware that there was meddling. I think they're, they're not aware of the extent to which it happens all the time, and um, not just here in this country, but in other democracies, many of which are fledgling democracies. And it is um, this combination of cyber attacks, hacking, troll farms on social media. What we just read here is an example of uh, some of the disinformation 
uh, think tanks that are useful to them, political organizations, state-sponsored media, uh, including uh, here in this country. Um, we have recently authored legislation here, which passed at the end of last year, and Senator Murphy's here uh, this morning. Uh, we authored this to try to get a, the United States more aggressive in responding by coordinating better and having more effective messaging. It's called the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act. It set up a global engagement center at the State Department. And my question to you today is to dig a little deeper into what you've already talked about. You mentioned the EU External Action Services STRATCOM Task Force, and it seems to me they're doing very important work. The question is, very specifically, how could we coordinate better with your own uh, new organization, STRATCOM, uh, to better provide information back and forth about disinformation and how to counter it? And I hope you're taking that from this hearing, uh, that you'll be reporting back and saying we would like to encourage that and increase that. Uh, our State Department effort is just standing up. Uh, but that would be my, my, my first question, I guess, is what else are you providing to your member states? Now, I know you also have, under Europol, as Chairman Corker referenced, uh, the EU Intelligence and Situation Center, other data collection efforts, which offer real opportunity for sharing information and mutual support. Is that also going on between you and your member states? Yes, Senator, and uh, we also have uh, the, the cyber, uh, counter cyber center in, in Europol as well. So, I mean, there, there are a, a wide range of, 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 of efforts uh, being undertaken to, to combat uh, these di different threats that you mentioned, which are, uh, as you rightly say, something of enormous concern on both sides of the Atlantic. Can STRATCOM, can STRATCOM actually tap into those resources, those intelligence resources? Uh, I would not like to, to say for certain they, they, they can uh, in, in, in that way. Uh, we certainly work very closely across all the institutions in Europol and, and the External Action Service and, and the Commission. Uh, so I, I think there is a, a, a very strong degree of coordination at European level. My sense is that here in this country, and my sense is this is true in the EU as well, that there is not uh, the kind of coordination that would be useful um, always with regard to countering the disinformation and so um, I know sometimes there are legal barriers to it. Uh, sometimes there are different levels of classification that make it difficult. Um, but I think this is, again, something that's in our interest and in your interest, both to coordinate across the Atlantic, but also to have better coordination between our intelligence services and the efforts we're making to try to, to counter. Um, you've got 22 member states in NATO, as you said earlier. And you know they've come up with this new approach to combat what they call hybrid threats. Yes. Uh, so kinetic and non-kinetic, and, and certainly disinformation is a big part of that. This joint framework on countering hybrid threats has now been uh, established. Um, can you talk a little about that? Uh, again, can we collaborate better? Obviously, the EU, the United States are the major players here. Um, and is there information sharing between NATO and these specific organizations like STRATCOM? Well, I, I Firstly, of course, the uh, hybrid center of excellence that you mentioned is being set up uh, in Finland as a, as a, as a, as a NATO uh, exercise. Uh, and yes, there is a very good uh, exchange of, of, of information and best practice uh, across the, the, dif the, different, the different players. This is not to say that one, one cannot always do better. As I think Senator Shaheen pointed out, uh, it's not just a question of the disinformation. It's not just about intelligence. It's also about uh, mm -hmm. dealing with things which are not secret, but which are actually sort of very public, and, and how, you, how you deal with that and how you respond to it, uh, how you make it better known that these are, uh, uh, this is misinformation and disinformation. Uh, but uh, we would be certainly happy to discuss further how we could work even more closely together on, on, on those issues. 
Yeah, well, thank you. I think the example I used at the outset is, is one along those lines. It's not a matter of intelligence uh, sharing on that. It's a matter of ensuring people know that these are false narratives and uh, communicating clearly. And we certainly have a shared interest in that. So we, we thank you for your personal commitment to that cooperation uh, between the United States and the EU and look forward to working with you more closely on this. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you, uh, Ambassador. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for um, uh, for holding uh, this hearing and for maintaining this uh, bipartisan commitment to the transatlantic relationship. Um, uh, thank you for, in your opening remarks, Ambassador, for uh, uh, talking about the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. Important that we remember this country's commitment uh, to building uh, open economies and robust democracies uh, in and around Europe. That's a time when we were spending about 2% of our country's GDP uh, on economic and democracy advancement overseas. Today, that number is 0.1%. Uh, and if this administration has their way, heading uh, even further in the wrong direction. Um, second, to the, uh, to the chairman's comment about whether this is a settled case or not regarding Russia's interference in the US elections, it's really interesting CBS News poll from just about a week ago suggesting it's not a settled case, that only about 40% of Americans believe that Russia interfered in the U.S. elections to benefit President Trump, uh, and that for about 60% of Americans, it's still an, an, an open question. Um, and I don't think that's coincidental to the president's weekly tweeting uh, that all this coverage about the Russian interference in our elections is fake news. I think my worry is that um, you know, this sort of open assault by President Trump on uh, the mainstream media in this country, it, it, it plays into Russia's objective. We talk about Russia's interest in trying to spread their specific narrative throughout its periphery. But in many ways, that's not their primary objective. Their primary objective is to really shatter objective truth, to just raise questions about everyone's narrative so that uh, people around their, uh, in their sphere of influence um, just believe that everything is spin and that there's no truth any longer. Um, and, and so I think we have to remember that what's happening here, this exceptional assault on the media coming from the chief executive of our country, um, you know, frankly plays very nicely into the strategy that Putin has employed throughout the region. Which gets me to this effort that Senator Portman and I have been engaged in to try to build some uh, increased capacity to partner with yours uh, to try to grow um, objective, independent journalism. We have to remember that in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, um, you know, this kind of, of independent um, journalism is really in its infant stages still compared to you know, how long we've been at it in Western Europe and the United States. Um, and I know that this is um, in, in part uh, what the EU East Stratcom Task Force is talking about, trying to raise a fund that could potentially be partnered with the dollars that may come into the Global Engagement Center um, to directly assist um, independent media uh, sources um, to, to grow their ability to tell an objective story. Um, so I, I maybe want to ask you specifically about uh, the work that the EU is engaged in uh, to try to promote independent, objective journalism in places uh, where it just doesn't have the roots that it does in other parts of the continent. Well, I, I, I should emphasize that uh, 
the Stratcom East Task Force is, is a fairly lean operation. In fact, they don't, they don't have an operational budget. They, they only have their own administrative budget. They're, they're not in the business of, of giving money to other people for, for, this, for, this, uh, for this activity. Uh, I think the point you make is, is a very valid one, and it's certainly something we do a lot um, through our development assistance programs outside of Europe. Uh, I think the, the, the feeling within Europe is that this would be very much a matter for our individual member states. I mean, it goes to journalism courses, it goes to the, the training of journalists and so forth. So uh, I am not aware, but I, I certainly can take it back and just double check of, of any specific action by the European Union as such. Uh, on, on the issue of journalism within Europe, uh, but uh, I, can, I, can, I can have a double check to make sure I'm, I'm not misinformed. Uh, just to change subjects quickly, if we were here two years ago, we would be spending a lot of time talking about the EU-US trade deal, and we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that because we sort of feel like we're in a post-trade deal environment here. But the president has floated a um, bilateral trade deal with Britain, which to many of us would seem to reward them for walking away from the uh, European community. So can you just talk about um, your member states' continued desire to ultimately have a trade deal with the United States and how we should think about ordering um, any new trade agreements with Europe or with individual states? I would think our preference should be to do a European trade deal before we do uh, any bilateral deals with countries that have withdrawn from the European Union. Well, uh, as you know, Senator, uh, we were negotiating for three and a half years on a, a, a comprehensive uh, free trade agreement between the United States uh, and the European Union, and I want to emphasize that, that is a bilateral deal. That is not, it's not like TPP where you sit with uh, 11 partners around the table. You have one negotiator on behalf of the entire European Union, the European Commission, uh, and one US negotiator. Um, those talks have now been uh, suspended pending the, the review of trade policy by the incoming administration. Uh, there is not yet appointed uh, a United States trade representative, so uh, we are waiting patiently for the new administration to reflect on this issue and to engage with us on how we, how we, how we go forward. I think the, the, the fundamental reasons why we started the negotiation in the beginning, which have been highlighted by a number of you, and in my introductory remarks about the, the, the importance of the transatlantic uh, economic corridor, which is the single most economic corridor in the, in the world by far. We are much more heavily invested in each other than either of us are anywhere else in the world. Uh, and therefore, the logic of a, a future comprehensive trade deal remains uh, pertinent in our view. But of course, we, we understand that the, this administration is reviewing its trade policy, how it wants to, to proceed. We wait patiently for the, 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 the necessary uh, responsible uh, people to be in place, and we would hope to take up that, that conversation. As for an agreement with the United Kingdom, uh, this is when the United Kingdom leaves, it will be for them to decide uh, how they wish to take forward their own trade policy. This will not happen for uh, at least two years uh, uh, following the triggering of Article 50, uh, at which point it will be entirely a matter between the US and, and, and the UK as to how they, how they want to proceed. I would just point out that I think the UK economy is 2.5 trillion euros. Uh, EU 27 will be a 15 trillion uh, uh, economy. So in terms of the uh, economic impact of the trade deal, those numbers give you uh, some, some sense of the orders of magnitude. Thank you. All combined, 48% of the world's uh, um, GDP, which, you know, not much in the way of labor differences, environmental differences, uh, you know. So at some point, hopefully, collectively, all of it will be done. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I, I think it's been mentioned earlier before, 
and it's relevant to the question I'm about to ask with regards to the European Union, um, but we are all now aware of these stark images emerging from an attack yesterday in Syria involving nerve agents, uh, by all accounts. It's sad, you know, if that would have happened two, three, four, five, six, seven years ago, we'd all be outraged by it, it'd be leading every newscast. Now it's accepted almost as a matter of course. It's truly unbelievable. We've reached a point in this world and in our political discourse in this country where people are being gassed with nerve agents from airstrikes. And it's just like another day where something else has gone on. The outrage level has reached a point of resistance now where it's just truly startling. I know the Secretary of State a couple of days ago, our Secretary of State commented that the people of Syria would have a role to play in Assad's future. Well, it depends on which ones are still alive uh, because uh, if this continues and it would have been impossible had it not been for Russia's cooperation and support of Assad. And, and I think uh, our allies in Europe understand this. And I ask you this because this attack happened basically on the same day that uh, the European Union is hosting a conference about who's going to pay for rebuilding Syria. And the message seems to be, I'm going to keep, I, meaning Assad, is going to keep gassing and killing people and doing whatever he wants with the help of the Russians, the Iranians, Hezbollah, and others. And then you, the world, including the European Union, are going to pay for it. What is the sentiment of the European Union in light of the fact that as this gathering is occurring, I believe, in Brussels, on the eve of it, or on the same day of this gathering, we receive news about this horrifying atrocity committed by the Assad regime, assisted by Vladimir Putin. What, is, what has been the sentiment in light of the timing and the, between this attack happening on the same day or on the eve of this important gathering? Well, Senator, I, I, I can only share your outrage uh, at the, the horror of the, the attack and if, if it is confirmed, the use of, of chemical weapons, which we are completely opposed to. Uh, this is, I think, Syria is one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our, of our lifetime, of our generation. Uh, uh, and, you know, the neighboring countries have borne the brunt. Uh, uh, we have also seen the consequences. The European Union, I think, has worked tirelessly uh, to try to find uh, a ceasefire and a political transition which would enable the people of Syria to determine their own future. Um, this is the, the sense in which we've worked. We've worked closely with the United States. Uh, it has eluded us for, for the moment, but we will continue to work in that direction. The conference that you mentioned at the initiative of High Representative Mogherini is indeed to designed to get us to start thinking about the day after. Uh, assuming that we can get a ceasefire, assuming that we can get a viable process of political transition and allowing the people of Syria to determine the fate of their own country, how do we support that process and encourage them? Because the, the reconstruction which will be needed in Syria is massive, Senator, as, as you can imagine, the destruction which has been done. And it will require a massive effort of the international community. So uh, it's not that we're abandoning our, our, our issue of wanting to see a ceasefire and wanting to see a political process where whereby we can uh, figure out how the Syria determines its own future. But if we don't start now thinking about what the reconstruction and how that could be funded and how it could be done, that will also be an incentive to the warring parties, perhaps to also realize the benefit of, of actually stopping the fighting and, and uh, trying to find a way forward. So it's in that spirit that we are, we are convening this conference. It is not in any sense to be complacent about the, the ongoing horror of what is happening in Syria. By, and by no means that I mean to imply that they're being complacent. I think it's an important conference as well. I would just say, as a matter of, of personal view, and I hope it's one that's widely shared, it's hard to imagine the international community getting together and helping rebuild a Syria in which a war criminal, 
a, a monster like Bashar al-Assad, who's this is not the first time he's done this sort of thing, would somehow be running that country. It would be very it, it would be difficult for the people of Syria. If, imagine for a moment if you are one of these people who just had your child killed by a nerve agent dropped by the regime, ever accepting that this individual is going to be governing you. And so I, I know you can't comment on that, but that's my view, and I wanted to share it. And I wanted to share one more thing. And this, I think, goes right to the alliance between the European Union and the United States. It's a quote. The Washington Post ran this about 48 hours ago, and it really is, I think, goes right to the heart of what's happening. This is from Jean Kirkpatrick back in the 80s. She wrote, to dis quote, to destroy a society, it is first necessary to delegitimize its basic institutions so as to detach the identifications and affections of its citizens from the institutions and authorities of the society marked for destruction. An alliance among democracies is based on shared ideals. The process of delegitimization is therefore an absolutely ideal instrument for undermining an alliance as well as for undermining a government. Isn't that in fact what we see occurring via Vladimir Putin? He is attempting to delegitimize the institutions of democracy across our alliance for purposes of destroying that alliance. Well, I, I think that we uh, understand that perhaps President Putin sees uh, real democracy as, as a threat to the situation in, in, in Russia. Uh, we, uh, as you know, strongly support uh, democratization and the, the, the institutions which go with it. Uh, I come back to the point I made earlier, uh, Chairman Senator. Uh, I, I continue to have great faith in the robustness of our democracies on both sides of, both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and I believe that while there are forces at work which would seek to delegitimize de de or, or to put into question uh, the, the, um, the effectiveness of those, of those institutions, I, I, I believe that in the end, the commitment of our citizens to a democratic, the democratic process, to the rule of law, uh, will, will, will carry the day. But we understand that there are very distinct threats uh, coming to, in, in that direction. Just for the record, Mr. Chairman, I thank you for your testimony, for your support, for everything you've done with us here today. Just for the record, I don't want to be unfair. As far as I know, as of 11.40 p.m. a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, I am not aware of either a State Department or a White House statement condemning what has occurred in Syria. Mm -hmm. And I hope that changes. For turn to Senator Markey, do you see any circumstance where the European Union would not wish to pursue war crimes against Assad? I would not feel able to answer that question, uh, Senator. I think the, the, uh, the question of how the political transition takes place in Syria, uh, what is the, the, the continued, if any, role of President Assad in that process as part of a transition or as part of an end game and what the final decision would be. I understand, but that be. to me is a different topic. The, the notion, surely that speaking of just who we are, um, Regardless of what may occur in a transition, do you see any situation where the European Union members would not wish to pursue war crimes uh, against or that Assad committed and to have him punished and hopefully put away for that? Do you see any circumstance where that would occur? 
I am not aware that that issue has been discussed and decided uh, at the European level, and I wouldn't wish uh, at this point, uh, Chairman, whatever you know, my personal views might be on the matter, to, to, to say something which uh, implies a commitment on the part of uh, the European Union or its member states. I, I take the point. Uh, you know there has been much debate about uh, how the political transition will go forward, and uh, that is something which will have to be, I think, uh, decided uh, in particular by the Syrian people once we can get a transition, a process of transition. But I take the point. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for your uh, great work for uh, the whole planet. Uh, in response to Russia's campaign to influence the recent U.S. presidential election, the Obama administration imposed sanctions on a number of individuals and entities, including Russia's military intelligence service, the GRU, which ran the operation. One of the individuals designated under sanctions was Yevgeny Bogachev, a cyber crime kingpin whose criminal organization stole upwards of $100 million before it was taken down by the FBI and a global consortium of law enforcement agencies. In addition to theft, Bogachev also used his network of hundreds of thousands of hacked computers to search for sensitive intelligence relating to Georgia, Ukraine, and Syria. That suggests that he operated with impunity in Russia in exchange for working as an intelligence asset. It also raises troubling questions about Russian support or tacit acceptance of organized crime to support its intelligence gathering and cyber warfare objectives. Can you speak about the importance of the law enforcement cooperation that is necessary between the UN, between the EU and the United States in order to make sure uh, that we are properly policing uh, these areas that are very, very shady and in fact help to enhance the cyber war capacity uh, of Russia uh, in this effort that they are engaging in versus the West? Well, thank you for your question, Senator. I mean, I, I think a, a fairly consistent theme of this morning has been indeed our, our, uh, the fact that we are uh, working together uh, closely uh, on these issues, sharing information, comparing notes, and I hope that we will, we will continue to, to do so because this is, as you say, a, a common threat uh, where we need to uh, maximize the sharing and pooling of our information about what is happening and how we can uh, respond to it. Now, uh, is there a coordinated effort to amongst the EU to uh, ensure that there is a promotion of liberal democratic values in uh, its, its uh, member states, uh, given what has already happened with regard to the Russians uh, in their efforts, uh, not only in the United States, but uh, in countries within the EU? Is, is there something that's coordinated that, uh, that has had meetings amongst EU nations uh, towards pushing back on Russia? Well, I, th I think, uh, as I said, I, I think in answer to Senator Shaheen, on, for example, in the Western Balkans, this is an area where uh, we are very uh, uh, insistent as part of the uh, future membership process of those countries that indeed they have to subscribe to, to, to those very principles of democracy, rule of law, human rights. Those principles are enshrined in our basic treaties, the, the Lisbon Treaty and in the Charter on Fundamental Rights, and all our member states are committed to respecting and to taking forward those, those principles. So we, 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 they, are, they are, if you like, at the, at 
the, the, the core of, our, of the existence of the European Union. Okay, could you speak a little bit as well about this uh, offensive, defensive, nuclear weapons tension that has been rising uh, between Russia and the West uh, and the impact that that has upon accelerating uh, this, um, uh, this ever-increasing uh, uh, confrontation between Russia and the West? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, Senator, that I'm qualified to, to answer that question. It's not, it's not something that I, I follow in, in, in great detail. I mean, clearly, uh, the discussions between the nuclear powers on how to uh, avoid uh, 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 unnecessary confrontation or how to avoid uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, un, the unknown facts of... of, of, of Use or, or, or misuse. Uh, the issue of non-proliferation is, of course, something on which we work. We work closely. Uh, so we are we are heavily engaged in, in in all of these areas. But I'm 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 not going to. Uh, I don't feel able this morning to to give you more details. Okay, great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Ambassador O'Sullivan. Um, I know many of these topics must have been covered as I was in other hearings, and I apologize, but. Uh, the title of this is important. The European Union is a partner against Russian aggression. Partnership implies a number of things. I think partnership implies um, a shared goal, a shared set of values. And the United States and the European Union do have a shared goal of trying to confine Russian aggression. That is a shared goal. Partnership also implies some reliability. You'll help us and we'll help you. What would it say to our EU allies who are engaged in this partnership with us if the United States fails to take seriously Russian aggression against the United States? What would it say to our allies about our willingness to help them deal with Russian aggression? Well, I think, um, Senator, we are we have a shared objective, uh, which is the preservation of our respective uh, societies and, and countries and keeping our, our citizens safe. Uh, and we have many shared objectives uh, between us uh, in terms of uh, the issues we've been discussing this morning. I, I think the, your, your question, if I may say so, is, is designed to trap me. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I do not, I, the question of what constitutes aggression and what, how, how a country chooses to, to address that is, is very much for each of our, each of our instances to, to decide. Uh, I think do, we, do, Does the EU have a position whether um, an effort by Russia to destabilize a domestic election among an EU member would be considered aggression? I think uh, we are all agreed that uh, external meddling in domestic elections uh, is uh, not to be approved. Uh, and I think that's a, a consistent position we, we all take. Uh, and, uh, but it is, I think, at the end of the day for each of our, uh, in the case of the United States, or for our member states uh, in the European Union, to make that determination as to whether that, uh, that point has been established. The EU nations hope that the United States would, would be a partner in countering Russian aggression uh, in their own domestic politics or in their own sovereign affairs? I think if any of our, our member states or if the European Union felt that they, they, they wanted assistance from the United States, they would feel able to ask it, and I'm sure they would feel that they would receive it. They, they would hope that we would be cooperative. I have every reason to believe that America would be, you always have been a great partner and ally to, to all our member states and to the European Union. 
if these nations see the United States or the administration, the current administration, being lackadaisical about Russian attacks, um, saying that they didn't happen, saying that it's fake news, uh, trying to um, demean the intelligence community that is suggesting that there were such attacks, trying to slow down or stop an investigation into the attacks, wouldn't that send a, a message, a real mixed message to European nations that, wow, if the United States isn't even willing to take steps to protect itself against Russian aggression, what is the likelihood that they would be willing to take steps to protect us against Russian aggression? Senator, I think you're trying to take me into uh, d domestic U.S. politics, and uh, you'll forgive me if I if I feel that it's not uh, not my position to, to comment on your domestic on your domestic bait. I can only reiterate what I what I've said from the beginning. Uh, we have a very strong partnership with the United States. Uh, we feel with this administration, we have a good understanding on the issues that we've been discussing. Uh, of course, there will always be a domestic political debate about the issues you raise, but that's really a, a matter for yourselves and and not for anyone from outside to comment. Um, do you feel like w what we do domestically about the Russian attack on our electoral system sends no message to European allies? I think people uh, view these issues as part of a, a domestic political debate in the United States. And uh, as I say, these are issues ultimately for the United States uh, political system to determine. And I, I, don't, I certainly don't feel able to comment on how people would uh, ca ca categorize that or, 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 or categorize the, the you know, within, in terms of the language that you've used. I don't think that that's necessarily language that would be used uh, by, by other observers might be shared by some, but perhaps not by all. So you don't, you don't worry, however we resolve this domestic issue, which is an issue of the attack of a foreign nation on our electoral system, the Russians that we're having this hearing about, you don't think European nations will draw any conclusions about what kind of a partner we would be with them against Russian aggression from our resolution of this issue? I repeat, sir, I think this is a, essentially a domestic issue for, for the United States to, to resolve through, through your political system, uh, and I, we remain convinced that the United States is a, a reliable partner and ally in, in, this, in this discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I, I would just, uh, I know you were at a, probably an armed services hearing. Um, I did ask if he felt there was any sense of this administration doing something soft relative to Ukraine or Crimea. Uh, and you sense no change in, in status as far as our coordination with Europe and our strong position relative to Mints, Crimea, Ukraine, and everything else. Is that correct, sir? That's correct, Chairman. Do you want to Mr. make I, I just want to, I, I know we're completing this panel. We have a second panel. I just want to clarify two points for the record. First, in response to Senator Rubio and the Chairman's comment on Assad's conduct, I understand you can't speak for every nation. But the civilized world must make it clear you, that when you gas people as part of a, uh, of a military operation, that's a war crime. And those who are responsible will be, must be held accountable. And the, the lack of clarity on this only encourages more of this outrageous behavior in which the civilized world cannot be silent about. And I understand your restrictions, but Assad must be held accountable for his war crimes. Second point I want just to clarify, and that is you're correct about 
how we have to prepare against what Russia is doing on disinformation. And you, you mentioned specifically hardening our ways that we register and count votes, and that's something we have to do in, in today's world. But the other part of this is the misinformation, the use of social media, the fake news, the cyber attacks to get information. And in that, it's much more complicated and much more difficult. And it's that information where I think we can do a better job, because Russia is ahead of us. They do things we wouldn't think about doing. And we have to do a better job in organizing that. I appreciate it, Mr. Chairman. I want to clarify those points. I appreciate that. And, and I, I thought the exchange was actually very healthy. And I do hope that somehow, before European countries would consider participating in rebuilding Syria, uh, regardless of what political transition has worked out, that there would be a first, a step relative to uh, assuring that Assad is punished uh, for his war crimes. I hope there's some caveat there that takes place and not just an automatic rebuilding that takes place uh, um, on his behalf. So uh, I know it's on behalf of the Syrian people also, but uh, I do hope that. Listen, you've been a, a great witness and you did a great job of making sure you didn't speak uh, for less of the European Union inappropriately. You've been a good sport and, uh, and a great friend to the United States, and we appreciate you being here very much. And there may be some additional questions. We'll keep the record open until the close of business Thursday. I know you have other responsibilities, but to the extent you could answer those fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. Again, thank you so much for your willingness to be here. Thank you for, your, uh, for our shared concern relative to Russia's nefarious activities in trying to break down the institutions that have made the European Union what it is and have made our country what it is. And with that, uh, we'll go to the second panel. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, we thank you both for being here. I'm going to move right into it. And uh, we have a, also a noon vote, so there's going to be some coming and going. We apologize. Uh, sometimes um, that's a hazard of a second panel. But we thank you both for your expertise. Um, Mr. Uh, we'll now turn to the witnesses of our second panel. It's, uh, one is Mr. Kurt Volker, the executive director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership at Arizona State University, a friend to many of us. He previously served as the United States Permanent Representative to NATO, as well as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Thank you so much for being here, sir. Our, th our third witness, second witness on this panel, is Mr. Daniel Baer, who served as U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe under President Obama. Uh, he has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for State for Department of Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. We thank you so much for being here, sir, and your previous service to our country. And with that, if you'd give your opening comments in about five minutes or so, we'd appreciate it. Without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And uh, we look forward, if you would go into the order that you were introduced, we'd appreciate it. Again, thanks for being here.
Thank you, Senator, for the introduction. Thank you for having me here. It is an honor to testify before this committee. Uh, I will uh, just briefly say I, I have been following the discussion this morning about the attacks in Syria. It is absolutely outrageous to see chemical weapons used again in such a way in Syria. Uh, we should have intervened long ago in Syria. I wrote an article five years ago in April 2012 arguing that, and it is inconceivable to me that we end up with a situation where Assad would be asserting the right to rule over all of Syria. At best, you would have to see some kind of separation where the majority of people can, can live without the threat of that kind of regime lording over them in the future. To turn to the topic of the hearing, uh, I'd just like to make four brief points. Uh, I can elaborate on them, and I look forward to the question and answer. The first, uh, it used to go without saying, but maybe it is worth stating very clearly again, a strong, healthy Europe, including a strong European Union and a strong NATO alliance, is a vital national security interest for the United States. Uh, we are a country that is anchored on core democratic values, our European partners are anchored on those values as well. We join together in dealing with challenges around the world. We face the same challenges. And the stronger Europe is, the better for the United States. The more our values advance in the world, the better for the United States. Second, Europe is facing almost unprecedented challenges, certainly unprecedented since the formation of NATO and the European coal and steel community, which was the predecessor of the European Union. Uh, these are challenges both internal and external. Uh, externally, we see terrorism, we see the refugee flows, the migrants, we see Russia's aggression in Europe. Uh, internally, we see the rise of populist movements, we see the effect of these unintegrated refugee and migrant communities. We see the financial crisis in the Eurozone, which has managed but not gone away. Uh, we see slow economic growth. Um, and this has given rise to populist movements from the right and the left that are challenging the established institutions. So Europe is in very serious shape right now. Um, that should be a concern of the United States because a strong Europe is in a U.S. interest. Third, uh, Russia has been a major player in seeking to create and exploit these circumstances in Europe. Uh, its aggression, uh, as mentioned, it is occupying parts of Ukraine, of Moldova, of Georgia. It uses information uh, warfare. It um, engages in massive propaganda, uses energy as a weapon, is engaged in financing political movements, engaged in uh, commercial deals that are, are seeking to influence the policies of governments in Europe. It's doing all those things. But fourth, Russia's actions, such as they are, are not the decisive factors influencing the direction of Europe. Uh, Europe, nonetheless, has strong democracies, strong institutions, strong media, strong commitment to core values. Russia is exploiting weaknesses where it can. It is creating problems where it can. But ultimately, I believe that Russia is in a weak situation. It's playing a weak hand very well. Uh, but nonetheless, Russia faces its own challenges. Ultimately, I think the strength of Western values and Western institutions, including United States values and U.S. institutions, uh, will outlast all of this. But we do face this kind of activity from Russia, and it means that we need to be vigilant. We need to uh, work to mitigate the impact of this. We need to ride it out. Uh, so those, I think, are the, the key things uh, to talk about in the 
uh, in the discussion this morning, and I look forward to your questions, Mr. Chairman, and, and those of the other members of the committee. Thank you. Thank you, and Mr. Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Let me say at the outset that I uh, join you and, and others in expressing condolences to the families uh, of the victims of yesterday's terrorist attack, and I join Senator Rubio, Senator Cardin, and others in, in sharing the outrage over the attack today, uh, yesterday in Idlib, uh, which is still under investigation. Uh, thank you for inviting me here today. When I was posted overseas, I was grateful to have both your support and the support of the ranking member, and I'm, I'm glad to be here today with Ambassador Volker, and, and I agree with what he has just laid out. Uh, my written testimony also provides a, a fuller treatment, but I want to hit on three points. The first point is that the EU is an essential partner. I'm a fervently pro-European American, and the U.S. in cooperation with the EU and its member states, with NATO and NATO allies and partners, has worked over the last 75 years to support an international system based on rules rather than on zero-sum power calculations. The EU is a partner that shares our core values and can be counted on to work with us to seize the opportunities and confront the challenges of the 21st century. Second point, we face a shared challenge in Putin and Putinism. Vladimir Putin, so often portrayed as a strong man, is like many strong men, perpetually insecure, with good reason. Putin knows that the people of Russia are increasingly ill-served by his regime, and that at some point their dissatisfaction will be a greater force than he can contain. Putin's current foreign policy behavior is motivated almost entirely by domestic political pressures, and we must be prepared for Putin's behavior internally and externally to get worse before it gets better. Putin has pursued a number of policies aimed at attacking democracy, political stability, and the strength of rule of law and institutions in the US and Europe. And these include the invasion of Ukraine and attempted illegal annexation of Crimea, attacks on the American elections in 2016, including, including the marriage of hacking, propaganda, human and technical amplification on social media, and passive and possibly active coordination with US political actors aimed at fueling divisions in American society, undermining trust in our democratic institutions, elevating the candidate Putin saw as challenging American values and undermining the candidate he thought would uphold American values. Attacks on uh, elections in several European democracies, including the upcoming elections in Germany and France, support for far-right groups and parties in Europe, exploitation of energy supply as a political tool, support for corrupt political actors, including in EU member states, efforts to maintain corruption and low-level instability in the Balkans, and massive use of Russia's propaganda organizations, including RT and Sputnik, to pollute the public sphere and undermine public debate. Third point, what we can do to confront this shared challenge together. It is vital that the US corrects course and that the current administration moves quickly from a set of alarming and ignorant comments to having a real policy and strategy for managing and mitigating Putin's negative impacts on world peace and security. Here are several components that should be part of a broader strategy for dealing with Russian aggression. One. Together with the EU and NATO allies, we must support Ukraine. This means not only continuing our sanctions and our support for Ukraine's right to defend itself against Russian aggression, but also supporting the young reformers and civil society and parliament pressing for changes that will complete the revolution of dignity. Two, we need an independent commission to examine Russia's intervention in the 2016 US elections. This should not be a partisan issue. The Russians view their intervention in our elections as a successful operation. We must understand how it was executed, what worked, what didn't work, and how to defend ourselves in the future, and how to effectively help our European partners defend themselves. Three, sanctions. I congratulate the bipartisan group of senators, including many from this committee, who have co-sponsored the Counteracting Russian Hostilities Act of 2017. The executive branch should also review existing sanctions to identify appropriate additional targets and do the groundwork to prepare for additional sanctions under executive authority. 
Four, partnerships, both government to government and with civil society and independent journalists to expose the nature and its extent of Russian active measures. Five, countering corruption should be explicitly identified as a US national security priority. I applaud the inclusion of specific initiatives to support counter-corruption work in the draft legislation I just talked about. Six, the White House should instruct the interagency to develop a plan to enhance our law enforcement partnerships with Europeans to increase enforcement of criminal sanctions for money laundering and other financial crimes. Seven, send clear and sincere messages of friendship to the Russian people. Because Putin's grip on Russian media is so tight, this is increasingly difficult, but we should continue to seek innovative and effective ways of doing so. Eight, the United States and the European Union cannot counter Putin's aggression unless we continue to offer moral leadership. Putin can attack truth, but he cannot kill it, and he will not win. We can counter Putin by defying his efforts to undermine our confidence in our democracy and by reaffirming our commitment to the universal principles that underlie it. We can counter Putin by making use of the Magnitsky Act and the Global Magnitsky Act to punish human rights violators. When we speak out on behalf of human rights, when we call for protections for the most vulnerable, when we lend our support to those who seek to hold their governments accountable, when we champion the anti-corruption reformers around the world, we are reaffirming the moral foundation upon which our country and our progress rest. We must never cease to work toward a more perfect union here at home, and we must never cease to be a champion for human rights in the world. Before closing, I want to offer a word of personal gratitude for the efforts of several of you on this committee, on both sides of the aisle, to ensure that during this unusual political time in the United States, voices of moral clarity on national security issues continue to be heard. There have been several times in recent weeks when I've been grateful to see members of this committee reaffirm an undying commitment to America's role as a beacon, as President Reagan put it, for those who must have freedom. Thank you very much for that, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Um, you know, one of my concerns that I have in all this conversation about investigations is that, and I said this last week at the open hearing, is this we're missing the forest because we're focused on a couple of the trees in there. All this is relevant. We want to know the truth about everything. I'm very proud of the work the Intelligence Committee continues to do. I know the chairman spoke about that in the opening of the first panel. But I think it's important for us to inform the American people as to what's happening here. This isn't just about one election or one candidate or one person. This is a broader effort of mis disinformation, misinformation strategically placed for purposes of creating all sorts of things. The first is undermining institutions. Ideally, I think uh, one of the things Vladimir Putin had in mind for the United States and ultimately for Europe is to argue that these democracies are fake. It's not real. These institutions you guys rely on, these elections are rigged, and we're going to prove it. Uh, and and they, you know, planning stories and the like to undermine our confidence institutions that go. I don't know if you both heard the quote that, uh, that I had from uh, Gene Kirkpatrick that dates back about 30 years about the delegitimizing institutions and how that ultimately delegitimizes our alliance, uh, an alliance of democracies. The other is in undermining individual leaders, right? And uh, that can range from a word that a lot of people have learned about over the last three months, compromise, all the way to just strategically placed information uh, for purposes of creating political problems, some of it fake, others not. And the third is for purposes of creating internal friction points. You know, we know that there's a topic in a country. We know that topic is very sensitive. What stories can we create or what fracture lines can we create so that these people end up fighting against each other? And, and I think that is the broader challenge that we face is that this is in many ways an information war in which both the strategic leaking of true, real information combined with fake information and news 
combined with some other more, even more nefarious elements, all are put together as part of a very strategically well thought out, well practiced effort to undermine individuals, institutions, and sow instability and conflict within individual countries. That's been the experience in 2016 in the United States uh, in, in that election cycle. But uh, I think that's what we're now seeing in places like France, what we're seeing in the German elections and the like. I wonder are there, what you both view as the status of those efforts in France and in Germany, how those countries have reacted to it, and whether there are any lessons to be learned by the way they are, they are addressing it. Happy to go first, Senator, and thank you for the, the question. I agree completely with your characterization. This is a uh, much larger, full-scale effort on the part of Russia to try to achieve strategic impact. Uh, it is about the direction of the European Union, the direction of NATO, the direction of individual countries in Europe, and even the United States. Um, as I said in my testimony, I don't think that ultimately they will be successful in this, but part of that has got to be our being aware of what the challenge is and pushing back on it. I would uh, address a couple of things. One, in addition to the examples you gave, I asked some colleagues in Europe for more examples of what they see. One, for instance, preying on the weakness of traditional media uh, because of financing in Europe, Sputnik and RT make themselves available as partners for media. And in Slovakia, for example, the national broadcaster wanted to work a contract with Sputnik to gain content. Uh, that only was stopped because of public outrage when it became public that that would be the case. In another instance, because of the paucity of party financing, uh, political parties turn to businesses in Europe for support. Russia has invested in some of these businesses, and then those businesses put pressure on government to influence policy in ways that are favorable to Russia, such as by lifting sanctions over Ukraine. So those are some of the mechanisms that we've seen in place. In the case of France, uh, the uh, national front leader, Marine Le Pen, has publicly stated that she has received loans from Russia in order to sustain her political activities. Uh, we haven't seen as direct an influence in party financing in Germany, but we do see a direct effort on the part of Russia to work with and influence individual politicians. And this has a very direct effect on the debate. And given the way the French elections will have a decisive impact on the direction of the European Union, I would expect a full-scale effort by Russia after the first round in the presidential election to do everything possible to discredit Marine Le Pen's opponent and leave her as the sole candidate standing who would have a chance of winning. Uh, it could be that that is Macron, and so I, I am uh, confident that Russia is building the dossier right now to try to release on him after that first round. Thank you. I agree with what Ambassador Volker has just said, uh, and I agree with you, Senator, that, that there's, this is a much broader effort. I think uh, one of the things in my written testimony that I said is, you know, RT's slogan, question more, isn't about critical thinking. It's about calling everything into question and thereby undermining our ability to have the kinds of fact-based debates that should be the contest of ideas that our democracies depend upon uh, and making it difficult to apply our values to the reality that we see in front of us. I think two of the friction points, for example, that you alluded to, one is the way we've seen R Russia fan the anti-refugee, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in, in Europe, not because they're particularly anti-refugee, -refu I mean, there's no ideology here, but because they know that puts strain on European societies and European leaders, and that that is a pressure point that they can turn. Another example would be the, the way they've co-opted some environmental NGOs, you know, people who are genuinely committed to environmental progress, to use them as a way to try to 
increase European energy de de dependence on Russia. Uh, and I think we have to be attentive, attentive to these. In terms of your question about what's going on now, I think uh, Clint Watts, who briefed the, the Senate Intel Committee last week, ha has done an amazing amount of open source research, which he presented, that sh uh, including the research that as soon as they were finished training their sites and their bots and their distribution of information content vis-a-vis uh, -vis the US election, the same actors, the same gray sites, the same bots started putting out junk about the French and German and, and Dutch elections. Uh, and so we've seen a continuation of these tactics. I think one of the things going forward, I, you know, I think we will need to do after actions of the French election, after actions of the German election to see what we can learn about what the Russians did there. I think one of the things going forward would be, would be to encourage uh, our intelligence community to redouble efforts to identify things consistent with sources and methods that we can be sharing in terms of our intel contacts with uh, our European partners to identify commonalities between what we saw in the U.S. and what we see there so that they can help defend themselves. I just think if we took a step back and put ourselves in the position of Vladimir Putin right now as he looks at the news in the United States, he would say to himself, well, let me see, for what we did there, we now have one party basically accusing the President of the United States of potentially not being legitimate because of ties potentially with us. We have all this controversy swirling, swirling. He looks at the other party and says the other party is at war with the intelligence community and the former president. And so he looks at all this chaos and I think he's got to feel pretty good about the end product here. In essence, he basically has what they did basically has us fighting against each other all day long as opposed to solving some of our challenges or coming together on some of the other uh, uh, challenges before our country. And um, that's the broader point that I think we're missing here. This is not so much about end results, a specific winner or a specific loser, it may be, but it's even more than that. It's about the state of affairs in a country where he now has the standing, he thinks, to go around the world and say, America? You mean the America that is fighting against each other every day on this, that, and the other, an America where the political parties can't even uh, agree on the basic validity of some of their institutions from time to time, the America where you have uh, this sort of, uh, I'm not talking about political debate, these are all legitimate, but the internal strife that we are creating here, and I think all of us in this process need to ask ourselves about it, because some of these are legitimate issues, I'm not asking that they not be covered, but all of this back and forth that seems to dominate our coverage politically today, all of this undermines us internationally, and I think he points to as a fruit of this labor. And in fact, uh, is something that they're going to, and so when he does that to a country in his periphery, it's important and it matters. When he does it to the United States of America, when he begins to undermine not just our internal confidence, but global confidence in our institutions, in our leadership, in our ability to govern, in our ability to lead on the global stage, he's achieving far more than perhaps he even thought possible when he began this endeavor. And so is this not more than just, uh, I, I guess I'm using you guys to make the argument, is this not more than just about an individual election, who won, who lost. It's, it's actually a direct attack on our elections process and ultimately our system of governance and, and its credibility and legitimacy. Wholeheartedly agree, Senator. I think that's exactly what it's about. I think that Russia is trying to weaken the EU, weaken NATO, weaken the transatlantic link, weaken our institutions, weaken the belief that people have in our institutions and the value of democracy and, and our own values that underpin that. Uh, freedom, human rights, rule of law. Uh, believing that everything is all the same or everything's relative or that only a strong leader is going to make a difference. 
As you said, and I completely agree, uh, Putin believes that instability is in his interest. We believe stability is in our interest. We believe security is in our interest. He believes lack of security creates opportunities to exploit change. Uh, when we look at an intervention somewhere in the world, we look at an exit strategy. We want to know what's going to work to leave stability behind. Putin looks at it as an opportunity and doesn't care about an exit strategy. He can leave any time he wants and doesn't take responsibility. Uh, so there are vast differences between them here. As you frame this issue of internal strife and how that plays into Putin's hands, what I would say is that two points seem to be uh, clear to me and I would hope that they sink in in our domestic dialogue to make this easier. One of them is that it's incontrovertible that Russia has tried to influence events inside the United States, influence politics. It doesn't mean specifically going to a polling station and rigging the vote in that machine, but it means as a strategic matter, Russia is trying to have an influence on us just as they do all over the world. No surprise there, nothing new there. This is not something that was created in 2016. At the same time, um, the fact that Russia is doing this has not had a strategic impact. Uh, we are nonetheless a strong country with strong values and strong institutions. And uh, despite the fact that Russia has been active, doesn't mean that they have been able to tweak us. And as a result of that, I think that um, we, we ought to be able to have these two points in front of us and then move on to talk about how do we actually address this? How do we mitigate Russian influence? How do we build, as uh, Ambassador Baer said, a strategic approach to dealing with Russia as we see it now? I apologize, I need to go vote. I hate missing votes, right? Let, let me thank uh, both of you for, uh, for being here. And uh, Ambassador Baer, I want to start with you, if I might, because this is an extraordinarily important moment for the OSCE. You have one of its member states that has set a horrible record in violating every one of the principal tenements of the Helsinki Accord in its activities in Ukraine. So you, you have a country that has shown a total disrespect for the Helsinki principles. And of course, Helsinki itself operates through consensus, so it's gonna be challenging to see the OSCE be able to take action. But it's clear that those of us who believe in the importance of our commitments on territorial integrity, the use of negotiating differences, not using force, and standing up for democratic principles, not attacking other countries' democratic institutions, all of the above. So the question is, how can we be more effective in countering the Russian aggression? What can the, we do with those countries that are not only threatened, but are committed to the principles of democratic institutions, how can we be more effective in countering Russia, recognizing that nothing's off the table when it comes to Russia? They'll invent news, as we've seen. They'll lie. They'll use social media to elevate its importance. They'll do all the above. So what, what is your recommendation for the United States Senate, for U.S. leadership, and how we can galvanize a more effective response to protect democratic institutions that we've worked for 70 years to not only 
preserve but expand in Europe. And of course, now the attack on the United States. Thank you, uh, Senator, for that very easy question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, obviously, I share your assessment that uh, it, we are, when you have, a, we have an organization that is based, I mean, it, it goes back even further than that. In some sense, the OSCE, the Helsinki Decalogue, was a delicate balance between the West and then the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union and, and Associated States. And the balance was we cared about open societies, and they cared about preserving borders. And we said, okay, we'll acknowledge borders in exchange for you uh, uh, caring about open societies. And when the, when the side that now, uh, that, that cared about borders is now violating borders willy-nilly, uh, it, it, it poses an even greater challenge to, uh, to our work uh, within the OSCE. I think one of the things that we have going for, uh, for us in the long run is uh, geography. If you look at a map of the world, without the names of countries on it, and you said which country should care most about the inviolability of borders, the fact that Russia is undermining the rule of law with respect to sovereignty and territorial integrity is insane from a national security long-term strategy of the Russian Federation. It's so, so let me stop you on that point, because when I met with the State Department to go over the appointment of our ambassador to the OSCE, and your name was mentioned, they said we want Daniel Baer because he's a Russian expert. How do you change the equation for Russia? You said it's not, you're, you're leading to, it's, it's counterintuitive to their geography, but how do you change the equation? Because right now it looks like they are trying to create space by instability so that they can bring down democratic systems of government because they need it an autocratic corrupt system for Mr. Putin to, serve, to conduct his business. They want space so they can increase their influence, which is good for their local popularity. How do you change that equation? Well, I think uh, in the short term, it will be difficult to change the equation. We're, all we can do is attempt to apply consequences for Putin's negative actions. But in the long term, we have to be confident that, as Ambassador Volker said, you know, Putin is playing a weak hand. And it's a hand that's getting worse by the day, not better by the day. And there will be a post-Putin perestroika. There will be a day when the people of Russia have the chance to make their own future and a future that delivers. And one of the things that we can do today to make that day both sooner and easier for the people of Russia is to support Ukraine. Because the greatest way to support the future of democracy in Russia in the year 2017 is to support the democratic future that is being built in Ukraine today. And so I think that is one of the concrete areas of, of focus. I think another really important thing is for us not to engage in the kind of unilateral moral disarmament that Putin wants. He would like, part of the reason he, he deploys active measures, uh, part of his own international discourse is to try to draw an equivalence between himself uh, as, as leader of Russia and the President of the United States of America. And I think it's very important that the President of the United States of America, whoever that is, understands that as President of the United States of America, you are not only the leader of the United States of America, you are the leader of the free world. And to embrace that, not as some kind of added task that takes up time, but as a fundamental component of your job. And I think that, is, that continued moral leadership, which I emphasize in my, in my testimony, is also important to playing the long game in this. Let me just underscore that. I, I met a couple times this last two weeks with Vladimir Karamurska who has, of course, been poisoned twice by Russia. He's here in the United States with his family. 
And what he has said, and I, I quote it frequently, he said, well, he was sitting where you're sitting. He said, you know, we're not asking America to come to our defense or to, to do, all we're asking America to do is stand by your values and don't give legitimacy to Mr. Putin. This is not a battle about the Russian people, it's a battle about the Putin government. And that we have to stand true. And I to say in, in closing, it's also been struck, striking me right now with President Sisi here of Egypt, and we'll have a chance to talk to him shortly, that so far we have not seen any statement come out of the White House on American values, and uh, which are universal values of good governance and fighting corruption and fighting the rights of civil society. And when they're absent from the discussion, it just leads to that void that gives the Putin types more leeway to expand their influence. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. And sorry that the Senate schedule is, has meant that so few of us can be here to question and, and hear what you have to say. I, I want to ask you, Ambassador Beer, you talked about the importance of Putin seeing consequences of his actions. One of, I share the concerns that Senator Cardin raised about, for me, one of the most disconcerting aspects of their interference in U.S. elections is this effort to manipulate our news and our social media to their benefit and the failure of um, I believe, of the American people to really recognize that. So what kinds of responses do you think are appropriate? I, I guess I would ask you both this in response to the actions that Russia has taken. What should we be looking at? Uh, thank you, Senator. I, sh I share your uh, concern. And I think, um, you know, while many people may be aware of the fact that Russia deployed active measures uh, during the course of the 2016 election, it's probably less well understood, and, and part of the reason why I believe that we need to investigate this, it's less well understood how a story started with an FSB right. agent or a GRU agent in Moscow was then packaged by Sputnik or RT, pushed out to a number of either will, uh, paid or just willing collaborators often sitting at, in uh, Eastern Europe, who then propagated to uh, gray sites that are not overtly part of uh, Russian propaganda, and then then bots, it gets picked up. Then it gets amplified through bots and retweeted. And then, importantly, somebody in New Hampshire posts it on their Facebook page without knowing that what they're putting right. on their Facebook page is Russian junk. And they deserve to know what how that happened because that that is that is something they have an interest in. And, and the voter in New Hampshire deserves to know whether she or he had more impact than a GRU agent in Moscow. So I, I mean, I share your your sense that this is an important area of to, uh, um, to focus on. I think in terms of consequences, everything should be on the table. We've talked about sanctions. I think uh, additional sanctions, obviously there have been sanctions imposed already for the actions that Russia took during the course of our election. I think the executive branch as well as uh, the legislative branch should be looking at what additional sanctions may be appropriate. I think another thing that an independent commission could do would be to recommend certain appropriate consequences that could be considered by the Senate uh, or, uh, or the House or the, uh, the executive branch. I think in addition, um, we should be thinking about um, uh, delivering consequences in both, uh, at both a political level in terms of what we withhold in terms, we know that Vladimir Putin cares greatly about his stature on the world stage. The United States has 
the ability to influence the view of Vladimir Putin on the, on the world stage, and we should be thinking about that. And I think we should not lose sight of the fact that Vladimir Putin has his own staged election coming up uh, next year, uh, in which he will have to steal votes again. He will have to manipulate administrative uh, resources in order to get the returns that he wants. Uh, and that shining a spotlight on, on that, um, calling into question his legitimacy, he can't win without stealing. Um, you know, I think that's obviously an opportunity where he has vulnerabilities as well. Let me ask, um, Senator Young and I have legislation that would um, close a loophole in the Foreign Agents Registration Act that would require um, RT um, has to comply, which they're avoiding right now because they're, um, they claim to be organized through another entity. Is that, you think that's helpful to be able to push back in that way? I, I think that um, in general, yes, it is helpful. We want to be able to do it in a way that it doesn't get used against us as, a, as an instance of us uh, curtailing media freedom. Now, RT and Sputnik are not news agencies. They are propaganda arms of the Russian well, government. And, and, and clearly so that's what they've already tried to do. Um, the headline is what's next, Ex public executions. But this is not an effort to curtail media freedom. This is an effort to make sure that they comply with the law just like every other entity complies with the law. Um, Ambassador Volker. Uh, thank you, Senator. And uh, I would agree, first off, we have laws on the books, as you say, that uh, media companies and others are required to uh, comply with. We do need to make sure that we're enforcing our own laws and that equally across the board. Right. Uh, second thing to add to some of the answer that uh, Ambassador Baer gave, I, I think in pushing back on this, we need transparency. So shining a light on what is actually happening as much as possible. Uh, I think that is itself one of the most powerful ways of diminishing the impact of what Russia is doing. Uh, second, as um, Senator Cardin said, I would agree, standing uh, very forcefully and articulately on behalf of our own values, to, to say what those are, to make sure that people in countries around the world, whether they're our own or whether they're in Russia, know what it is we're standing for. Uh, and then thirdly, I think we need to be taking the initiative on policy issues. Uh, Putin has done a great job of seizing the initiative, and then we've been floundering and, and responding uh, late and insufficiently. And take, for instance, Ukraine. I think if it starts looking like Russia is failing in Ukraine, that's going to be a different narrative for Putin than what it looks like today. So I think we need to be taking the initiative to push back on Russia and Ukraine, to be supporting the Ukrainian government more, providing more armaments there, providing some more monitors from a NATO perspective inside Ukraine, and not letting people forget about Russia's occupation of Georgia, not letting people forget about the occupation in Moldova, uh, and exposing some of the things happening internally to democracy activists and NGOs and political parties inside Russia. Those are the sort of pushback that I think we need to be doing. Great. Let me, I know I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, but do you both agree that we should provide defensive weapons to Ukraine? L lethal. Lethal weapons. Yes, I lethal. Would say. Lethal weapons to Ukraine and uh, I, I wouldn't emphasize defensive, I'd emphasize those that are necessary for Ukraine uh, in order to have a capable military able to defend its own territory. Ambassador Baer. Yes. Yeah. I think the committee generally agrees. We passed unanimously a, a piece of legislation, what, three years ago out of the committee? Uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's been a shame that 
not only not that has been supplied, but uh, intelligence that might make it look like we're operational. So uh, we thank you both for your Mr. Chairman, on that point, I agree with you completely. And with, considering the last witness, I remember the pu pushback we got was that it would cause a problem with Europe. And it was interesting we had, of course, the representative of Europe says they want to work closely with us. We've got to lead. Just make yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I would agree with that 100%, and I hope we'll do so in Iran very soon. Uh, with that, guys, uh, we uh, thank you both for your testimony. I'm sorry that it was uh, shortened a little bit because of votes and what's getting ready to happen, but we thank you both for being here. Um, there will be additional questions, as you heard a moment ago, and the record will be open until the close of business Thursday. Thank you both for your service to our country, uh, for your contribution in this effort. Um, and with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you.